When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Hello, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. A lot to get to. This is going to be a show for the ages. I'm going to tell you about it in just a bit. But uh, there is one story that I've had on my list for that I am eager to get your take on. And it has to do with religion and sexuality. Namely... There is a Catholic cardinal, actually specifically a prominent German archbishop, who has advocated loosening celibacy rules for Catholic priests. Now, this was published before a meeting of the German Reform Assembly. Cardinal Reinhard Marx, the archbishop of Munich, told a... Catholic publication in Europe that, quote, it would be better for everyone to create the possibility of celibate and married priests. His comments come as his diocese has been shaken by an independent report on the church's handling of sexual abuse cases over decades, which faulted Marx and predecessors, including Retired Pope Benedict XVI. Marx is a prominent reformist ally of Pope Francis and said last week that the church needs deep reform to overcome the disaster of sexual abuse. Quote, for some priests, it would be better if they were married, not just for sexual reasons, but because it would be better for their life and they wouldn't be lonely. We must Hold this discussion. My question for you is, whether you're Catholic or not Catholic, what do you think about this? Because we are seeing growing calls from among the Catholic Church, including from priests and cardinals, to reform the celibacy rule. So what this German archbishop is saying, he insisted that celibacy won't be scrapped altogether, but said he sees a question mark over whether it should be taken as a basic precondition for every priest. So it seems like he's entering into a whole nother gray area here. Back in 2019, Marx expressed support for a call by bishops in the Amazon region for the ordination of married men as priests in order to address a clergy shortage there, but stopped short of calling for 
a global recognition of married priests. The latest session of a German reform process that was launched in response to the abuse crisis uh, is called the Synodal Path, S-Y-N-O-D-A-L, which brings together Catholic Church and lay representatives, and that sparked fierce resistance inside the church, primarily from conservatives opposed to opening any debate on issues such as priestly celibacy, women's role in the church, and homosexuality. Now, I do have to tell you, one of the reasons that I have tended to identify more as Episcopalian in recent years is because I do like the more liberal rules regarding who can serve as priests. You can be a woman and be a priest in the Episcopal Church. You can be married and be a priest in the Episcopal Church to a man or a woman. And I I have to say, I've always thought that the uh, Catholic celibacy rules do tend to eliminate a lot of good folks from being priests. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't be married and be a priest. In fact, many, many years ago, there were married Catholic priests. But then it became an issue of, um, you know, really an economic issue more than a religious one. That's part of the reason they did away with it. So I'm curious if you think calls for loosening the celibacy rules are going to grow louder. And if you think that what Cardinal Reinhardt Marx is saying will soon be echoed by other cardinals around the globe. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Diana in Manhattan. Hello, Diana. Hi. Uh, Well, my grandfather was a priest in Spain at the turn of the 20th century. He quit the priesthood, got released from his vows at the Vatican, not entirely because of the celibacy rule, but that contributed to it, Uh, became a successful lawyer and politician, married my grandmother, had my mother, and, you know, So, I mean, uh, celibacy is wrong. Uh, You cannot – it's like saying don't think of a pink elephant. uh, Don't think of sex. It's all you can think of, you know? Well, I I hear you. Thank you, Diane. appreciate that. And just a reminder, if you do call the show, please uh, make sure you turn your radio off so that we don't hear the show coming back to us. 800-848-WABC. Tony is in Florida. Hello, Tony. Hi, Frank. It's nice to speak with you. Likewise. Now, I myself am Catholic, and I've thought about this, you know, for years off and on. And originally, priests were married up until around the 5th or 6th century when they decided to make them single because then they could devote their entire life to the church. And uh, so they stopped allowing them to be married, which I kind of agree with. But then on the other hand, um I don't think it's right to have somebody live alone their whole life without the love of a woman or of children. So I have mixed feelings. I can understand both sides of it. Well, okay. I think a lot of people probably are in the same boat, Tony. In my case, and this is one of the reasons I do appreciate the Episcopal approach to this. In my case, and thank you for the call, Tony, I've always felt that 
one of the many things that a priest is called upon to do from time to time is to act as a marriage counselor, either to counsel couples who are married through a tough time as they're trying to work out some marital discord or to counsel an individual who might be having um, a difficult time in the course of a marriage. And I do think, and, and I know there's a lot of celibate Catholic priests that do a wonderful job in this respect, but I do think it's an easier thing to do if you know what it's like to be married than if you don't. Uh, maybe that's a simplistic view on my part, but I do think it, it I don't know, that's still my view nonetheless. 800-848-9222. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about this uh, story involving this prominent German archbishop who is now publicly advocating for loosening celibacy rules for Catholic priests ahead of this German Reform Assembly. Is this direct, the direction that we will soon see the Catholic Church going? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Speaking of the Catholic Church, we are going to be joined in about 10 minutes by one of America's most prominent Catholic politicians, Senator Rick Santorum. Uh, we're going to talk not necessarily about Catholicism, uh, but uh, the news of the day, some other things that are happening in the Senate, and so, uh, the idea of an Article 5 convention. Now, I am, I'm all for shaking things up, right? I have always been for another constitutional convention, just because I like to make mix things up. But it's not something that I've really spent much time talking about and spent really any time worrying about, because I thought it was so unlikely to happen. Well, uh, just recently, a couple of more states have now approved. The, uh, the, they've now passed their own calls for an Article 5 convention. So I thought to myself, look, if more and more states are going to be doing this and momentum is continuing to grow about this, people in our audience should at least know what this is. So we're going to get into it with Rick Santorum. What is an Article 5 convention and where are things headed? Then. In the 2 o'clock hour, around 2.20 or so, Ollie London is going to be here. Ollie London is not only non-binary, but they are transracial. Ollie London was born a white person and is in the process of transitioning to becoming a Korean person. They weren't born Korean, but have had a whole bunch of surgeries to become Korean. It's going to be an interesting conversation. And then at 3.30, just when you thought this show could not get any more interesting, Dominic Crispino will be here. He's been a guest on this show before. He is a former attorney and an ex-con. And we're going to delve into a number of hot-button legal issues. He has a uh, tremendous amount of expertise from both sides of the both sides of the fence, as it were. 800-848-WABC. Let me say hello to Tommy in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Uh, good morning, Frank. Um, I, I grew up Catholic, but I'm not uh, a practicing Catholic. Whenever I heard something uh, about a shortage of priests, I would always think of, or even discuss with some other Catholics, why haven't they pushed for allowing priests to marry? A lady became Lutheran, and the priests uh, in the Lutheran church were always allowed to get right. married. 
maybe it's even women in there. You know, I, I just don't get it. They, the, the Catholic Church is going to lose people if they don't start uh, getting more, allowing it to be more progressive. I hate to use that word, but I think they need to uh, be more progressive in that area. Well, I, I think you're exactly right. And uh, I think, um, you know, so it sounds like you're on board with what Cardinal Marx is suggesting here. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the more conservative members of the clergy react to this, uh, Tommy, because as I said, there's nothing doctrinal. There's nothing, uh, you know, in the Bible about priests being celibate. This is something that was put in hundreds of years after Christ lived. So there's no reason that the Catholic Church couldn't make this change. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Tom is in Suffolk County. Hello, Tom. Yes. There's nothing in the Bible about a Catholic religion, about the Catholic faith, about the Christian Christian foundation as a, as a whole. Number two, I think it's all about money. You have a Catholic priest that passes away, they have to support the wife. I, there's, no, there's nothing in the Bible about the Catholic Church. It's about people preaching the Word of God, and that's it. There's no, there's no. It's, it's an institution created by man. Right. Well, uh, most organized religion is an institution created by man. Yes. The, but and I'm a Catholic. Right. But so the Catholic Church is just that, an institution, and there is a hierarchy, and there are rules. Yes. And now we're reviewing one of the suggested changes from a member of that hierarchy. So what do you think? Just, do you do you think Cardinal Marx is on to something? All I'm saying is just read the Bible. Read the good book. That's all you need to do. All right. Well, I, thank you, Tom. Uh, I mean, again, I appreciate the spiritual advice from Tom here. Uh, there are a lot of people that happen to be Catholic in the world. And this is one of the world's major religions. And one of the leaders in that religion is suggesting a major change. What do you think about it? 848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Seven open lines. Let me say hello to Phil in Mendham, New Jersey. Hello, Phil. Hi, Frank. Uh, I so agree with uh, everybody's economic angle. I'll only add the very small point that then uh, when a priest died, their their property would revert to the church instead of other heirs. Uh, when the Pope did it, the change that rule, it was definitely, as everybody seems to be saying, economic reasons. But may I come from a different angle on how counterproductive it is, uh, the celibacy? Uh, it might have uh, been noticed in about like the last... 40 years uh, about all of the molestations that have occurred by Catholic priests of basically altar boys. Uh, Catholic pre- uh, uh, altar boys are, um, are, you know, prepubescent boys that don't even have their secondary sex characteristics kicks in, kicked in. They don't have mustaches. They're not big. They don't have deep voices. And basically what the scandal originated from was a bunch of heterosexual priests with nowhere to go. Uh, because if you were a homosexual, you'd go get some big, hairy guy like yourself and go shack up. And that, well, that I'm, not, su- I'm not that hairy, Phil. Well, but that doesn't suggest that, you know, there aren't homosexuals in the church, but a heck of a lot of them were heterosexual guys that just decided that, you know, this was a target of opportunity. So the, gist of your, the gist of your point is that if, uh, if a heterosexual men 
did not have to suppress Look at their the sexual church. Well, right? Again, so let me just let me rephrase the question. Sure. So uh, your the gist of your point is if heterosexual men did not have to suppress their sexual desire, their libido, then you wouldn't have seen the the, the scandals that we saw with Frank, respect yeah. to. There's been no scandal so a, yeah, with the okay. Orthodox Church. Thank you for letting me finish my question. George is in Rockaway. Hello, George. Yes, good morning. Thank you for taking my call, phone call. Um, I'm up, I went to Catholic school, private school, for, for 12 years. And I raised probably about four to $500,000 a year for Catholic school education. With that being said, uh, I am shocked when I found out that the uh, in Brooklyn and Queens, the, the, the diocesan of New York... Throughout the United States, the Catholic Church is behind in supporting the Biden administration to allow all of these illegal immigrants to come over the border. Because most of them, they come from certain countries. They are Catholic. And if they come in, they're going to be able to sustain their flock and or increase it because at the current rate, because one of your former callers had said that, you know, they're losing uh, membership, so to speak, the Catholic Church, but with all of the illegal, undocumented people coming in, with the support of the Catholic Church, that's where they are looking to make up the windfall. Well, I, I, you're actually, you're absolutely right about that, and this is not something that's new. This goes back uh, at least 20 years, and uh, this is something that Larry Kudlow, who recently sort of found religion, pardon the expression, on the issue of illegal immigration. This is something that Larry, who's a very devout Catholic, was open about. Larry used to say both on the radio and to me privately that he was okay with illegal immigration because he he was a Catholic and he recognized the fact that illegal immigration was was good for Catholic church attendance. And I, I think that was uh, I think that's a, a very real point that you bring up, George. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Kevin is in Newton. Hello, Kevin. Hey, hi, Frank. Pleasure to talk to you again. Um, yeah, real quick. Uh, I'll just uh, on the subject of the celibacy issue with the church. Um, I'm, I'm born. I was born and raised Catholic, and I converted to uh, becoming a born again Christian in my mid twenties uh, because I was a little disenchanted with with some things in the Catholic Church. But as far as the thing with the priesthood, uh, there's a thing. There's something unnatural about it, and it's even written in the Bible. If now my my personal hero in the Bible, outside of well, Jesus is first, but then would be Saint Paul. And Saint Paul actually, in his epistles, wrote, and you, you know, obviously he was. He was a Pharisee, so he obviously he has a good testimony of becoming a Christian because I mean he was used to persecute Christians, but he said he had the gift of celibacy, but he said that everyone doesn't have that gift, and it was better to marry than burn. And obviously, I think we know what he meant by that. So I think that's why the Catholic Church has gone, gone a little went astray by not following that because I, it's obviously you know he's admonishing them that. Hey, yeah, if you want to be, you know, if you can be celibate, be celibate because it's gifted to you and you can do it. Otherwise, you should marry. So, in other words, and the problem is with, with the Catholic Church edicts, when the priest can't be married, there's the guys who a lot of, a lot of them are frustrated. So, I think that I think they should go back to the scripture and, and pick that back up. That's, yeah. that's about all. Well, uh, fair, fair enough here. Let me squeeze in at least one more call here. Al is uh, here in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Good morning, Mr. Morano. Yeah, in my opinion, the church has to change. Facts are dioceses and schools are closing all the time. They don't have the priests. Uh, these gentlemen start in their 20s, I guess what, till their 60s. 
they're giving a tenet of life, which was to be procreate and everything. They can adapt. The church has always adapted. Uh, Pope Gregory decided, hey, Sunday, we're going to make the church because of the calendar rather than Saturday. Uh, we unclean meat, guess what? Uh, fish, shrimp, lobster, anything that like that. Well, now we allow it. So they got to just change for the times. And then you won't, I think, have as many of these scandals that are continuously, I mean, where they smoke is fire. And quite clearly, they have not been able to police themselves about that. So give these gentlemen an outlet, have dioceses remain open. They are the largest, largest landowner in the world, but churches are closing, schools are closing that have been around in neighborhoods for years. I think it's part of the human condition, and they can adapt. Yeah, well, thank you, Al. 800-848-9222. Thank you. 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with Rick Santorum in just a minute. Rick Santorum is a former Republican senator from Pennsylvania and uh, somebody who is an advocate of a new constitutional convention. We'll get into that with him in just a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. songs he performed at the Super Bowl halftime show. You know, I, I, I did, we did have it on at the Super Bowl party that I show, uh, that I uh, hosted. I like this song, and um, this is, and I've talked about this before, this is a song from the film Eight Mile, and uh, I think it's a, a terrific song with a great message. Not only a great beat, but a great message. As far as the whole halftime show, Putting aside the whole controversy involving Snoop Dogg and his history with anti-police lyrics and things of that nature, you know, I thought it was, it's not really my type of music. All the performers that were there, it's not really the kind of music that I enjoy listening to, uh, but um, it was theatrically very well done, uh, the way that it was orchestrated and everything. So most of the people that I spoke to they they gave it pretty high reviews, especially if they like that kind of music. But I thought Eminem w- was pretty good in terms of his performance. I didn't re- I didn't uh, notice until it was written about a day or two later that he had kneeled during the halftime show, which apparently was some sort of a tribute to Callan Kaepernick. All right, uh, we're trying to get a hold of uh, former U.S. Senator Rick Santorum to uh, talk about the. Convention of States project, and uh, when we get a hold of him, we will bring him to you. Meantime, uh, talking about this call from this German archbishop to uh, allow priests to, and he's not saying allow priests to marry, 
But he's saying soften the celibacy rules for priests. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Jacqueline is in the Greenwich, in Greenwich Village. Hello, Jacqueline. Hi, Frank. Hi. Uh, I disagree with that, Archbishop. Um, I think uh, priests understand what they're getting into. Uh, They have the opportunity to date and, you know, uh, experience women before they join the seminary. And, you know, they are considered a higher order. And uh, you also open up a can of worms if you allow priests to get married. Uh, which is who's going to support the wife and the inevitability of children. Where is it, you know, on a priest's salary, how can he do that? Now, I understand, you know, the reasoning, uh, you know, behind it. But, you know, you look at someone like uh, Pope John, uh, John Paul, he had relationships with women before he entered the priesthood. Right, so did Pope he, Francis. Um, oh, oh, well... I'm not a fan, but, you know, I don't care what he did. But, uh, you know, it it opened up another side of John Paul. And I, I understand that. I respect that. The other thing is that most pedophiles, and that's what this archbishop is talking about, I think, um, they are married men. And so to allow priests to date and... Um, uh, get married is not going to eliminate the pedophilia. If that is in the guy, that's going to come out at some other point. Well, uh, so, thank you, Jacqueline. You know, again, I don't want to uh, overstate the the prevalence of child sex abuse in uh, Catholicism. I, I always felt that uh, as horrible as these instances of uh, child sex abuse were, that there was a tendency to exaggerate their prevalence. And look, I'm not trying to protect anybody that would harm a child and any any priest or any pope, for that matter, that would participate in the cover-up of a priest that would harm a child, I think is just horrible. But I, I do think there was always a tendency to exaggerate how common that was within the Catholic Church. Uh, I And I can't speak to what Jacqueline said there about the uh, likelihood of, uh, you know, uh, one type of person being a a child predator versus another type of person. Uh, We're not going to solve it today, but it's certainly an interesting situation, and we're going to be watching watching that. One of the most prominent Catholic American politicians is not only a former Republican senator from Pennsylvania and a former Republican candidate for president, surprised a lot of people with how well he did when he ran for president, but uh, these days he also happens to be a senior advisor to something called the Convention of States Project. We're going to find out what that is in just a moment. It is Senator Rick Santorum, who's kind enough to stay up late with us this evening. Good uh, good evening, or really good morning, Senator. It's great to talk with you again. How have you been? I'm doing great, Frank. Thank you for uh, for having me on. And uh, it's actually uh, it's good evening. I'm I'm in I'm in Wyoming, so uh, it's it's still still evening here. Okay, so it's uh, it's still yesterday for you. It's not yet today. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, Senator, before I pick your brain on uh, this movement for a new constitutional convention, you were in the Senate uh, and uh, you had some uh, legendary political and legislative battles. Now, the whole uh, notion of a the Senate filibuster rule is once again being debated and uh, people on both sides of this uh, of the political aisle 
have talked about whether or not to reform or even end the filibuster for a long time. It was uh, Harry Reid that uh, implemented the so-called nuclear option for judicial uh, nominations, which did away with the filibuster. Then, ultimately, they did away with it for Supreme Court nominations. There's some talk of doing away with the filibuster for legislation itself. As somebody that was in the U.S. Senate, what's your take on the on the filibuster rule and how do you think, if at all, it should be reformed? Uh, I think it should uh, stay just the way it is. Uh, it's, uh, to me, the, uh, the last uh, linchpin uh, to protect uh, our republic uh, and particularly to, re- to, uh, to protect federalism. And uh, and the reason I say that is that uh, without the filibuster, then we become a majoritarian society. In other words, that uh, whatever the majority wants uh, at, at any given time, it happens. And you say, well, that's a good thing. Well, actually, our founders thought it was a really bad thing. And that, in fact, there were many things put in place uh, to make sure that just the will of the majority didn't happen uh, anytime there was a majority of, 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 of thought uh, on a particular issue and that we, we wanted a society that was stable, uh, that, that changed slowly uh, because, uh, you know, we, uh, we wanted to make sure that those ideas that the majority might hold at some point in time uh, were well thought out and, and, and were not just a passion of the moment. And, uh, and, you know, we weren't going to be swinging back and forth like we see with, with presidents these days, you know, who uh, because the Congress has been gridlocked, uh, you have presidents who pass all these executive orders. And uh, every four years, you know, we have uh, a, a fairly dramatic shift in, mm. uh, in, in interpretation of laws. And that's, that's not healthy for the country. It's not, not a good thing for, uh, for people who want to have predictability in their lives. Uh, and, uh, and so having a higher bar uh, to give power to the federal government, to get the federal government to do things than just a simple majority uh, is, uh, is, you know, I think was one of the brilliance of the founders. And, uh, and, and so to me, uh, you know, and, and let me just conclude by this, and it sort of leads into Convention of the States. Uh, our founders realized that we were a diverse country at the time we were founded. Now people say, oh, we weren't diverse. You know, we were predominantly white and all these things. But you know, diversity isn't just what color of your skin you are, or you know, it it is your your thoughts and beliefs. And obviously, if you if you go back to the founding, uh, we had great diversity and great division in the country uh, about how uh, how people should live their lives. And uh, and, you, and some of those things were were horrific, uh, slavery being principal among them. Uh, but we were able to come together as a country. Because we allowed for that diversity from state to state. And, and we really, if you think about the history of our country, our country has always been very diverse and very divided. Except for, you know, I, I make the argument for, for about a 20, 30-year period after World War II, where everybody sort of was on the same page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, uh, and that's, that we're sort of going back to the norm now, uh, where it's okay for California to be fundamentally different in New York to be fundamentally different than Alaska and South Dakota. And to have a government in Washington, a majoritarian government in in Washington, that says we are going to decide how everybody in this country is going to live, and we're going to enforce those rules on everybody, 
And we're not going to allow, you know, Kansans to be Kansans. And we're not going to allow Vermonters to be Vermonters. And we're not going to allow Floridians to be Floridians. That's sort of antithetical to what, what you know, what, what our founders believed was an important part of keeping the country together, which is allowing differences. If you didn't like living in Florida, you moved. Sure. If you didn't like living in New York, you moved. And that's okay. And, and so it used to be accepted that that was, that was a, a, a rational way to have a country. But now we have most, mostly the progressive left uh, that's, that says, no, everybody has to live by our rules. And that's where we're, we're getting into the trouble. It's not that the country's divided any more than it has been really almost at any period of time in America. It's that we have people in Washington who don't want to allow people to be different where you go from state to state. One of the most uh, polarizing issues that we've seen in Washington, I guess, really over the last 30 years or so, has been the regular confirmation battles in the Supreme Court. Uh, We're expecting President Biden to nominate a Supreme Court justice in the coming weeks. How do you think the Republicans in the U.S. Senate should approach that? Should they uh, offer some deference to the president and uh, and approve or be likely to approve one of his nominations, understanding that it's somebody whose ideology they probably differ significantly with? Or should they make this a, a big battle? Um, you know, unfortunately, um Court uh, court nominations, almost of any any uh, court in America, have become pitched political battles. Um, I can tell you, when I was in the United States Senate, uh, I served under uh, Democrat first and then Republican administrations, and I think my uh, support for uh, judicial nominations uh, for under both was pretty similar. I I think uh, I voted for like ninety nine percent of of Clinton and uh, and Bush appointees, and you say, well, you know, how can you do that? And and the answer is, elections have consequences. People elect the president. When they elect the president, the president gets to appoint justices and judges. And and uh, they're not going to be my judges. I mean, if it's a Democratic president, and they're not going to be uh, people that I would necessarily want to put on the court. But that's not you know, I didn't win. You know, I did. My party didn't win. Uh, and so, as long as the person has the qualifications. The temperament uh, to be and and is within the you know somewhat within the mainstream of judicial thought, then uh, then that person, in my opinion, deserves to be to be uh, confirmed by the Senate. Uh, and I I would make the same case with with the Supreme Court. Now I I would make the argument that I have not seen a Republican nominee that that doesn't fit that description. Um, in my lifetime, mm. uh, and 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 so, and I, and, you know, uh, you, you, I could question whether I've seen a Democratic nominee that doesn't fit that description in my lifetime, uh, and so we, we'll wait and see. Uh, but you know, if if the president nominates a qualified person who has you know uh, shown good temperament and is and 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 has the requisite skills to do the job, and and has a modicum of respect for constitution within the the, the legal theories that are prevalent in the in, on the court today, then that person deserves to be confirmed. Uh, we're talking with 
former U.S. Senator Rick Santorum, also happens to be a former Republican candidate for president these days. He's a senior advisor to something called the Convention of States Project. Senator, I've been following the Convention of States Project for literally a few years now and been pretty interested in the work that they're doing. I suspect a lot of people in our audience, this might be the first time that many of them are hearing about this. In Mm -hmm. a nutshell, what exactly is the Convention of States Project? Uh, The Convention of States Project is a project that, going back to the point I was making earlier, uh, you know, recognizes that we are we can't succeed as a country, uh, and and uh, as as Washington continues to accumulate power and authority, and becomes more authoritarian, not just Washington generally, with being able to dictate every aspect of our lives, but the president in particular, because what we're seeing is not just a an authoritarian state becoming more and more prevalent in Washington, but but that the concentration of power within that that's uh, that state in the president of the United States. And so um, there 10 years or so ago, a group of uh, constitutional scholars came together and said, look, there was a mechanism put in the Constitution by our founders to address this very uh, uh, issue. And it's Article five. So if you you know, they're, they're everybody thinks of the you know, the there are twenty seven amendments of the Constitution, the first ten amendments, but there are obviously different articles within the original Constitution. Article one uh, created the Congress, Article two created the President, Article three created the judiciary, etc. Well, Article five created a, a a mechanism, is the mechanism described by the founders on how the Constitution is amended. And they provide two ways to amend the Constitution. Number one is for Congress to propose amendments. So the Congress can propose amendments to the Constitution, and uh, and once it once Congress passes uh, these uh, the uh, proposed constitutional amendment, it is sent to the states for ratification. Uh, the second uh, opportunity is for the states through the state legislatures to come together in a uh, in a convention to propose amendments. So the Congress can do it or a convention of states can come together to propose amendments to the Constitution. Now, our founders thought that, uh, from, if you read the debates, uh, you know, thought this was, uh, this was something that would be used uh, in case Washington basically got out of control. If Imagine Washington that. Decided, yeah, to, to sort of roll over the states and roll over the people and, and became this authoritarian power, which, of course, if you – you know, listen to the founders. That was the big thing they were concerned about. You know, a king and a and an emperor. I mean, if you look at every Republican history, they eventually end up with an emperor. They end up with you know being ruled by you know by by the by either the mob or by the king or by the by the emperor. And and so they provided a mechanism for the people through their state legislatures to be able to come together and say no. You know, we're gonna we're gonna propose amendments. We're gonna and and have a process completely outside of Congress, completely outside of, the, of Washington. And so the states can come together if 34 states agree on a resolution to call for a convention of states. Uh, and those 34 states would have to pass an identical or very similar resolution. Uh, under the Constitution, it says the Constitution says the Congress shall call a convention. Uh, so it's the they send the 34 resolutions, if you will. They, each state sends that uh, that to the Congress. The Congress, once it gets 34 uh, of this uh, of this uh, identical resolution, uh, has to call a convention. And then all 50 states 
uh, can, they don't have to, but all 50 states can uh, come come to this convention to discuss amendments to the Constitution, propose it, they in a sense become a little convention, a little legislature, they have rules, they have committees, et cetera, and they will propose amendments. Uh, 26 states have to have to agree. Each state gets one vote. Now, you can send a delegation, uh, but every, it doesn't matter the size of your delegation. You only get one vote. It doesn't matter whether you're California or South Dakota. Every state gets a vote. Why? Because every state is a sovereign entity and is treated alike. And so uh, that's, that's how this process would work. And then, of course, any amendment that is proposed by 20, and, and, and approved by 26 states uh, then goes to the, back to these state legislatures. Again, Congress has no role to play. That goes to the state legislatures, and if 38 state legislatures adopt this constitutional amendment, it's added to the Constitution. Uh, now, obviously, I think the one thing that conservatives and liberals are united on is that they're cynical about Congress's ability to get things done these days. If you were to explain to folks what the key advantages of a convention of the states would be, what would you say? Why, for instance, would uh, constitutional amendments or proposed amendments that come out of a, a convention called by the states, why would those be more conducive to effective governance and safeguarding liberty and uh, a better body politic than the legislation that's coming out of Washington? Well, the resolution that is being considered and now now has been adopted by 17 states already in this country. Uh, I'm in Wyoming to talk about it uh, uh, tomorrow, uh, is a resolution that uh, calls for a convention to do three things. And the three things that this convention uh, would be allowed to – three types of amendments that this convention would be allowed to propose is, number one, to limit the terms uh, of federal officials. When I say federal officials, I mean uh, every branch of government. That could be the executive branch, judiciary, Congress. Uh, so it's not just term limits of members of Congress, but it's 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 uh, limiting the tenure uh, uh, of any any person in power in Washington D.C. So that's number one. Number two uh, is to limit the the fiscal uh, uh, the, the spending of the uh, of of Washington D.C. So it could be a balanced budget amendment. It could be a limitation on taxes. It could be a limitation on spending. Uh, any type of fiscal limitation would be a, an amendment that would be at order in the con- at this uh, convention of states. And the third is a limitation of power. So it would say that the, you know, the federal government uh, can no longer uh, legislate in the area of, of primary and secondary education. So it would get the federal government out of running our, our schools, as an example. I'm not, I'm not proposing that. I don't, whether that is proposed, I don't know. But I'm just giving you an example that they could limit the jurisdiction of the federal government which if you go back again to Article One, there are you have enumerated powers. You have powers that are enumerated in Article One as to what the Congress can do. And through subsequent Supreme Court cases, those those have been obliterated. And now Congress basically does whatever it wants to do. Well, that's not what was intended. That's not the people. The, the founders uh, were very, very concerned about, again, Washington trying to force everybody to be like whoever who is in power today. And they wanted a lot of they wanted the respect for people's rights and for the diversity of opinion within America. And uh, and this this process that I've just laid out is our last best hope 
to to allow America as it was conceived and worked very, very well over a long period of time to continue. You are a rock star in conservative circles, political circles, legal circles. I, I've seen you at, uh, I think, at least two Republican conventions, and uh, you're greeted like a beetle, you're the, the fifth beetle. If you're going to have a convention of states and those proposals that come out of an Article 5 convention need to be uh, need to be voted upon by various state legislatures, chances are that um, those are going to have to be at least some proposals that uh, that people that are left leaning might be supporting as well. I think you make a very good case, whether it's for. Uh, limiting the uh, the the service of federal officials or uh, fiscal different fiscal responsibility issues as to why conservatives get a lot out of a article five convention. Can you see people that are on the center left of the political spectrum also supporting this? Yeah, in fact, when I when I give testimony before state legislatures, I, I actually address most of my comments to to Democrats. I mean, Republicans are who are the ones who overwhelmingly support this uh, because obviously they're more concerned about an authoritarian uh, Congress and president and 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 power being concentrated in Washington. But if you if you listen to what the Democrats say now, the question whether they believe it or not, but what you say is, you know, what what was their biggest concern about Donald Trump? He was an authoritarian. He was someone who was going to come in there and and use his power to to you know to to do things that were not what the public wanted him to do. Uh, okay, uh, you know, actually, one of the reasons I I found myself now joining the convention of states last year was because some of the things that Trump did I agreed with. I didn't like the way he did it. I think he he was you know, sort of bending the rules a little bit to to uh, to get some of the policies he wanted, you know, adopted. And 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 Republicans cheered him. I, you all might also remember Donald Trump uh, called for the ending of the filibuster. He, he wanted oh, I know. to get rid of the filibuster. Yeah. OK, so and Republicans cheered him that sort of the last chance to hold on to our republic, in my opinion. And, and Donald Trump was advocating for it. So I, I think both parties have sort of lost their perspective because there's there they they see the other side as as almost intrinsically evil, and that any means necessary is okay to stop it, and and so I look at Democrats and say, you folks say you're really concerned about this that you know we can't have Trump we can't have anything like that because they're authoritarian. Well, okay, then stop it, then stop them from being authoritarian. Take take some of that power away from them so they can't do these things, and and allow California to be California. So allow California, if California wants to create a single payer healthcare system, things in the federal government that sort of stop them from doing it, make it really hard for them to do that. Stop. Okay, get those out of the way. Uh, if California wants to do that, if California wants to legalize, pick whatever California wants to legalize. And there's lots of things that, that, sure. that they have and there are would drive me crazy. But if they want to do it, it's okay. I mean, I don't like it, but I don't have to live there. Okay, I can I can live in you know I can live in Pennsylvania. I can live in other states that don't have these radical ideas. And by the way, if they work well and people around the country see them and say, you know what, maybe we should try that here, great. And if they fail, then maybe other states won't be stupid enough to do what California did. But what what we don't want is we don't want California telling everybody they have to live like them. 
right? That, that they can't impose their values on everybody else. And so to me, this is this is what uh, and by the way, if a Republican comes into office who's from, you know, from South Dakota, they're not out there basically telling people in New York, this is the way you're going to live by mm-hmm. the way we live in Sioux Falls. Well, we're not in Sioux Falls. and I don't want to live like people in Sioux Falls. And and from my perspective, that's OK. What what the problem of the left, at least some on the left and not all, but some on the left is they think anything other than what they believe in is evil, bigoted, racist, whatever, and therefore they're going to make everybody comply with what they think. And that is a loser over the long run. That's how you have division breaking out across the country and, and, and a, a country that will, will ultimately fail. What we need is the brilliance of the founders, which is allowing people to live and let live whatever state they are and have the ability in their own local communities and their own states to be able to craft a, a, a society that is, that is consonant with their values. I, I could talk with you about this all day, and I hope you'll you'll come back. And I'm not going to keep you up too late because I know you're persuading the people of Wyoming on this front. But in the 200 plus years of the of the Constitution, we've never seen an Article Five convention, and we've seen tough times that the country has faced before. And it's easy to see a number of scenarios in which the country might have benefited from an alternative way of amending the Constitution as compared to the way that the previous 27 amendments came about. Why do you think we've never seen a convention of the states before? Well, I don't think, candidly, that Washington is is anywhere close to being as all-powerful as it is now. I mean, it, it, it just hasn't happened. I mean, if you up until really uh, about 100 years ago, Washington was a backwell little town that really had not much to say about anything. Uh, it wasn't until the passage of the 17th Amendment, which uh, eliminated the uh, uh, election of United States senators by the state legislatures. So you had the election election of United States senators that Washington became uh, started to become a uh, a power center in in America. I know people find that hard to believe, but just you know just go back and look. I mean, where there's no income tax, mm. I mean the the principal revenue of the federal government was on sales of alcohol. That was that was the that, that was the that was how most of the federal government money was collected up until uh, about a hundred years ago, and you know we we've, we've seen a dramatic growth over the past hundred years of the of the power of of, of Washington D.C. and it and it continues and you know look we're looking at thirty trillion dollars in debt. I mean the, the, we've just never seen anything like this, and and people have finally said, whoa, what do we what can we do to stop this? Because obviously Washington Republican Democrat can't fix itself. There's just no incentive to fix itself. There's no there's no will to fix itself. And this is why, you know, the the founders put this provision in there. And if anything, I think the founders would look, you know, if you could sort of bring them forward and and bring up the speed of the the history of our country, they would they would probably say, why haven't you used this before? If you think about this, people, there are people said, oh, you know, what would happen if we, you know, all these horrible things might happen. Actually, I, I think the argument can be made is it's highly likely that very little will happen. At a convention well, stage. well, yeah, and that's what some people are saying uh, is that uh, we could go to a lot of effort and maybe even a lot of expense, and maybe uh, we wouldn't see the the benefits that some people are, okay. are talking about. Right, but, uh, but Senator, we're gonna, I'm going to have to end it there. I really yeah. appreciate you coming on. Uh, I hope we can do this again, maybe in a week or two, and continue the conversation. 
All right. Thanks so much for having me. I Thank you, it. Senator Rick Santorum. If you want to learn more about this, go to conventionofstates.com. You can learn about the Convention of States project. You can sign up to be on their mailing list. That's conventionofstates.com. You want to comment on any portion of this, uh, give me a call, 800-848-9222, 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Moreno, and uh, you can call in and uh, be part of our conversation at 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. So it is interesting. Uh, you know, last night I had uh, dinner with uh, with an old friend of mine, and I uh, told Rachel about it a day or two ago. Now, again, when I make plans to do something and if it involves coming into Manhattan a couple hours earlier than normal or staying in Manhattan a few hours later than normal, it's a big production, right? Because all our schedules are array are basically geared towards looking after our almost three month old child. So um, this fella, Bob, a friend of mine, Bob, he had asked me uh, maybe a month ago, about dinner dates, and he gave me all these three dinner dates. He was very flexible, he gave me this, gave me that, and uh, this was one of the dates that I found the least problematic, right? So I told Rachel about this a day or two ago, and she basically said, okay, you know. So then as uh, yesterday, as I'm preparing to leave to make this 8 o'clock uh, dinner reservation, She's all set with it. And she says, hey, you know, can you do me a favor? Can you, you know, I ask you before I take a shower, meaning I make sure you're okay to watch our child for 10 minutes and I can step away and take a minute. Going forward, if you're going to do a uh, a pre-taped interview or you're going to have dinner with somebody or lunch with somebody, can you run it by me first? I said, well, you know, and here I thought I was awfully smart. I said, well, honey, remember yesterday I told you about this. She says, yeah, you told me, but you didn't ask me. So that is one of the key differences between uh, parental life versus pre-parental life. In pre-parental life, even being married, most of my, my social activities or professional activities, I just simply had to advise Rachel of them. Now, in parental life, this has become an advise and consent role. 
So that's where I am now. I'm trying. Uh, I'm working on on staying late Friday to have lunch uh, in the early afternoon, and I'm working on getting going through the advice and consent process, much as uh, Supreme Court nominees are hey, used where to. Where you going? So uh, if you want to comment, 800-848-WABC. Ollie London is going to be here in about 20 minutes. Very much looking forward to our conversation. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. about two stories that I don't love. Number one, uh, this is a story that was published on Valentine's Day. New York One had this story, but it appeared elsewhere as well. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, the ATFE. Do you remember the good old days when it was just the ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms? They had to add explosives, right? Uh, The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives is offering jilted lovers a unique way to celebrate Valentine's Day this year, saying the holiday can still be fun even if you broke up. That's a quote, even if you broke up. In a tweet posted early Monday, Monday was Valentine's Day, the ATF encouraged individuals to report ex-partners or current ones who participated in the sale or purchase of illegal guns to the federal agency. Quote, Do you have information about a former or a current partner involved in illegal gun activity? Let us know, and we will make sure it's a Valentine's Day to remember. And then it gives the phone number. And uh, individuals with knowledge of any illegal arms purchases can call 888-ATF-TIPS or email ATF-TIPS at ATF.gov. We would love to meet and treat them to a Valentine's Day surprise. Now, I, I want to be very clear. I, uh, nobody is more vehemently opposed to illegal guns than me. And this is, to me, the one issue that should unite everybody. Whatever your position is on gun control, whatever your position is on the Second Amendment, whether you think every American homeowner should be armed with a machine gun or whether you think... Uh, you know, everything except a uh, a musket should be banned. The one thing that should unite everybody is a crackdown on illegal guns. Because if you look at so many of the gun crimes that are that are committed, not just in New York, but uh, around the country. That so many of them are committed by people with an illegal weapon. And so I'm all for doing away with illegal guns. However, I do have to say that I find that the way the ATF went about this, basically asking people to rat out their ex-lovers, I find at best distasteful and at worst 
this could provide an incentive for certain people to inform on their exes when there's no need to, meaning when they haven't done anything wrong, when there's no illegal gun in place. I know one person, I don't want to delve too much into this because this is, uh, you know, it's a personal matter and it's a number of years old, but someone I'm related to was in a relationship with someone and this this fellow that, that she was dating asked to keep a suitcase, which apparently had a gun in it and some wep- and uh, some uh, some munitions, some uh, bullets, in this person's home in the basement. It's a locked suitcase, and she did. Lo and behold, the two of them break up, and this fella was so crazy that he calls the police and says that my relative had his gun and refused to give that gun back. And wouldn't you know it, my relative, who wouldn't even jaywalk, the police came and arrested her because, uh, you know, my relative believed that she always followed the rules, never did anything wrong, and the police came to her door, and what was her reaction? Come on in. She didn't think to ask for a warrant or anything. She never thought she was doing anything wrong. And uh, the police says, hey, you know, can we can we go down into your basement? Sure. She let him right into the basement, and there's a suitcase, a locked suitcase, just as her ex-boyfriend had described, and Sure enough, it had a gun in it. And this person claimed that my relative had not been uh, willing to give this gun back to him. Now, it wasn't true, but that person still got arrested. So because of its covert nature, the illegal gun market is hard to quantify. But most experts agree that the illegal gun trade remains a massive underground industry in this country. So according to the ATF, illegal guns typically start out as legal purchases and then they make their way to the illegal marketplace in one of three ways, through a private transaction, meaning I buy a gun legally, I sell it to Matt Blaze illegally, and who knows what he's going to go and do with it, or you use a straw purchaser when one person makes a legal gun purchase and then gives it to another individual that would not be able to purchase that gun legally or through the theft of guns from private owners or registered dealers. One survey found that each year there were around 30,000 attempted straw purchases. Now, that is significant. That being said, um, the I'm curious what you think of the ATF trying to use Valentine's Day as an excuse to crack down on people's exes and possibly having illegal guns. Is this good? Is this bad? Or is this just sort of harmless? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222 if you want to weigh in. I, I, I do get concerned that when you start playing into relationships gone wrong, that that opens a whole can of worms. What else are they going to start asking people to do? 
Hey, did your ex-lover not recycle? Well, if you have photographic evidence, be sure to tell us. Where else do we go? And again, I don't want to compare not recycling to illegal guns. I just, uh, I don't love that. I'm curious what you think of it. 800-848-WABC. Now, uh, another story that I found quite interesting are the senators saying that the CIA has been collecting data in bulk in a secret program. Senators Ron Wyden and Martin Heinrich, both Democrats, they said in a letter that uh, was partly declassified on Thursday that the CIA has been collecting data in bulk in a secret program that could impact Americans' privacy. So they sent the letter, these senators, to the CIA director, William Burns, and to the National Intelligence Director, Avril Haines, back in April. And the two Senate Intelligence Committee members called for more information on the program to be declassified. In addition to declassifying the senator's letter, the CIA also on Thursday declassified a portion of recommendations from a report compiled by a watchdog, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board on the program. Significant portions of both the letter and the recommendations were redacted, so the rest of the report remains fully classified. So what these two senators allege in this letter is that the program has operated outside of laws passed and reformed by Congress, but under the authority of Executive Order 12333, which was a document signed by former President Reagan 40 years ago that governs the intelligence community. Uh, th- this is the from the letter. The CIA has secretly conducted its own bulk program. It has done so entirely outside of the statutory framework that Congress and the public believe govern this collection and without any of the judicial, congressional, or even executive branch oversight that comes with FISA collection. The basic fact that this has been kept from the public and from Congress, excuse me, this basic fact has been kept from the public and from Congress until the report was delivered last month. The nature and full extent of the CIA's collection was withheld even from the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. I don't know about you. But I find this pretty scary. And again, if you want to jump on board, now's the time. Eight open lines. So those of you that are always complaining that you have to wait on hold forever, uh, you'll be able to get right through. 800-848-9222. I find this incredibly scary that two senators who serve on the Intelligence Committee are telling us that, number one, the CIA is secretly conducting their own bulk data collection program, which is basically what? Spying on American citizens spying on the American people. And number two, that this information of data, this collection of data, is being withheld even from the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Now, if our own elected officials, including on the Intelligence Committee, aren't going to be informed about what's happening, what does that say about representative government? So these senators, and I applaud them for this, and I'm all, I completely agree, they called for the CIA to release this information on the nature of the agency's relationship with sources and the legal framework for the collection, as well as the kind of records being collected and how much of, the, how much of Americans' data 
was being maintained. I completely agree with them. And I say more power to them. They also pressed the agency to declassify information on rules governing the use, storage, dissemination, and queries of the records. I say more power to you, Senator Wyden. Absolutely agree. 800-848-9222. If uh, the CIA is spying on us, I think we have at least a right to know what sort of information they are spying on us about. 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. Uh, on illegal guns, I mean, I, I don't know what your reluctance is. I mean, the, the gun that they might confiscate might be the gun that shoots you uh, in an illegal gun battle in the street. Yeah, again, uh, but I don't know. The, the, the way that they, that they frame the tweet is, I think, what bothers me. I'm all for getting illegal guns off the street. I just I don't love stoking the flames of relationship discord in order to in order to get, you know, ex-girlfriends to rat out their former lovers. You see what I'm saying? Well, I understand. Well, let me ask you a question. Say uh, your girlfriend came over and said uh, or your boyfriend came over to the girl and said, uh, I got a suitcase uh, put in the basement. There's 30 pounds of cocaine there or fentanyl. Uh, when you when you want uh, they put a thing out when you want them to be turned in uh, I mean I, I the guns are illegal it's illegal if it's legal it's one thing they're illegal so I don't see I mean when they got rid of you got to get rid of them off the street Frank yeah maybe you're right uh, maybe you're right I I, uh, I I guess you have a point there there Neil I'm 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 look I guess a, a better philosophy or one that I'd be more comfortable with would be. Uh, just uh, saying, hey, if you see an illegal gun, let us know. If you know of someone that has an illegal gun, uh, please let us know and uh, turn that gun in, turn that person in. It's the it's the way it's almost too cute by a half. I guess that's my issue with this. Um, you know, I guess that's the situation as well, you know, that I that I have an issue with. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment, if you want to weigh in. Uh, on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Uh, and we're on Facebook, too, at facebook.com slash fan. Very excited. Coming up in about three minutes, Ollie London is going to be here. Now, Ollie London, from what I understand, I'm going to confirm uh, in a couple of minutes, but... Ollie London is non-binary, but believe it or not, that's one of the least controversial things about them. We're going to get into that in a few minutes. It's going to it's pretty an interesting, pretty interesting person uh, we're about to talk to. Benjamin calling all the way from Australia, the land down under. Hello, Benjamin. Hi, Frank. Yeah. So what you're talking about, like mass surveillance, came up in the news recently, but Everyone that follows that kind of thing knows that in 2005, um, they br- first broke that story, you know, the American mainstream media. And um, so what they did after 9-11, they just built these uh, really gigantic supercomputer mini cities in different places in America. Like there might be one in Maryland, there could be one in Utah. And they have all these private contractors. Basically, anything you say on a phone that goes to an American phone or any email or anything, it goes through supercomputers and they flag certain words, you know, like bomb, blow up, you know, destroy, kill, infidel. Things like that will raise red flags. 
and then that's how they can protect you from crazy terrorists, basically. So it sounds like you're okay with bulk data collection. Well, I mean, what the problem is, is that when you get, um, see, like in the media, you have all these personalities in American media, you know, and they try to have contacts within the government that can tip them off about certain things, okay? But there's a division between who's in the media who's not really in the know or even who's in Congress who might not be in the know. And then just like, you know, the military has a black budget, so no one really knows what they spend it on. So the military might, they might say, okay, well, you can have $400 billion a year. You don't have to account for that. So you can do anything you want with that. You can build tunnels. You can have all kinds of rockets and things on this. But you don't have to explain anything to Congress. And then that's one thing. And then whoever's in the government, unless they're like Edward Snowden and they want to go live in you know, Putin's Russia, they can't get away from the American government. There's no way you can hide. Right. You know and, I mean? and, yeah, thank you, Benjamin. I, I think that's one of my issues with what the senators are claiming the CIA is doing here which is they're keeping the very agency, the very entity, rather, that's supposed to be regulating them in the dark about it. In this case, the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee. And I don't think that's right. Let me squeeze in one more call here before we get to Ali London. Pamela is in central New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Hi, I agree with you, Frank. When you start encouraging society um, there's a, a, to tell on people, totalitarian societies have used this. Uh, trick for years, and it can end up very badly. For instance, Hitler's youth were told to tell on parents, Jews, everybody. It can it can go down a very nasty path. Well, and, and I think you have put your finger on exactly why I find what the ATF is doing here so distasteful. Even though I agree one hundred percent with uh, with getting illegal guns off the street, it's. It's yeah, it's creating this culture of snitching on on friends, loved ones, former friends. And I I don't know, I just see so many ways in which this could be used uh, to be sort of nefarious. Pamela, thank you very much for the call. Ali London is here. This is a discussion you're not going to want to miss. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. W.A.B.C. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Smooth like butter, like a criminal undercover. Don't pop like trouble breaking into your heart like that. Cool shakes on the hair, owe it all to my mother. This is the K-pop band BTS. I'll tell you, I, I really have enjoyed quite a few of the K-pop songs that I've heard uh, from a number of groups, including BTS. But you're about to meet someone whose enthusiasm for K-pop in general and BTS specifically, it dwarfs any enthusiasm that I've ever had for anything in my entire life. Where to begin with Ollie London? Ollie London is uh, an Internet personality, a singer, and, uh, unless I'm misstating it, a transracial social media 
influencer, and I am just thrilled that they have uh, joined me in studio. Ali, it's great to see you again. It's so great to see you again, Frank. It's been a while. It, it, certainly, it certainly has been. Um, let me say in advance, if I use any incorrect term, it is not being done uh, through uh, – it's not being done to be offensive or anything like that. I'm it's chilled just, out. Obviously, cool. I'm All not right, one great. of those people that Love gets it. upset easily. I'm very chilled out. Now, yeah. um, you are non-binary, correct? Yeah, but, you know, I, I don't mind what people call me. I actually ask people to call me my Korean pronouns as they call Ian. You know, most people want to be called they, them. I'm like, no, I just want to be Korean. You know, I think you know a lot of our audience skews a little bit older, and the whole mm. idea of uh, non-binary when it comes to gender is something that's a very new concept uh, mm-hmm. for a lot of folks. And interestingly with you, that is one of the least controversial aspects of, uh, of your whole persona. Mm. But explain to me um, uh, how one decides to become uh, non-binary. How does that work? I don't know. It was just like I was so confused about who I am and stuff. And I guess I have identity issues. Well, that's what Bill Mayer said on his show the other day about me. He said, oh, I've definitely got identity that's issues. That's pretty cool, though, to be mentioned, I mean, even if it's critical. It's, it's cool. I, I do Mar. like the Bill Mayer show. I think it's cool. Um, I was, yeah, a little bit upset by what he said about me. But, you know, he's he's a comedian. I get sure. it and stuff. Um, but, no, it's just uh, I struggle with identity. I've had surgery. I've changed my life to become Korean. And I was like, you know... I'm a guy, I identify as a guy, so people can call me he, him, whatever, but I just, like, I also want to be identified as Korean, you know, because I've lived in Korea, I love the culture, I've had 20 surgeries to look Korean, I make K-pop music, um, so I've been learning language, so it's kind of like a kind of interesting mix. You, you said a mouthful there, and for people <laughs> that are not familiar with you, and I know we have a lot of your fans listening, and we're grateful to, to have them listening, I want to follow up on a few of the different things there. The one thing about uh, the non-binary uh, culture that that I do find a little bit confusing. You talked about your own confusion in terms of uh, of gender and uh, and ethnicity and other things. Is th- when you use the term they or them instead of he or she, um, it, it does become a little difficult to understand whether somebody is referring to a plural. Mm-hmm. Of a person versus not. How do you? How does one avoid confusion when it comes to plurality and using the terms you know, like that? I don't really use those plurals. I just, you know, people call me he, him, whatever. But I, I actually, you know, ask people to call Ian. You know, put a put a dash in the middle, call Ian. You know, make it Korean. But yeah, they them is like. It, I find it confusing as well because it's, you know, normally it would be plural, like Good. a group of people or two people and stuff. But, you know, I respect people, whatever they want to be. If someone wants to identify as an animal, go for it, you know, as long as you're not hurting anyone. Now, um, you you were born in the UK, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you, you were raised in the UK. Mm-hmm. And then you end up uh, living in Korea uh, beginning when you were how old? So I was in Korea in 2013. So I don't really like to say my age, but I was 23. So you did a math. Okay, yeah. fair, fair enough. So <laughs> uh, you starting when you were in your 20s, you mm-hmm. uh, were living in South Korea in a program to teach uh, students English. Right. So I was um, teaching at an elementary school um, English, and um, I picked up a lot of the Korean language while I was there, and I had such an amazing experience. And it was that experience that changed me as a person. It's I'd never really thought about Korea. I'd always loved the history. But when I was there, I just fell in love with the culture. And, you know, it's like anyone that goes to a different country, maybe you live there for a few years, you just fall in love. And I just identified with that culture more than my own. So I was like, 
yeah, I want to be Korean. Why not? What sparked your initial decision to move to or to live in South Korea to begin with? Before you made the decision to undergo this transformation, what made you decide, let me try South Korea? You know, it was so random. So I love traveling. I've worked in different countries. Um, when I was younger, I worked in New Jersey and Ethiopia and Africa doing a charity project. And I literally just Googled one day. I was like working abroad and a career came up. So you were a world traveler. You liked yeah. it, you, adventure. You liked traveling. Yeah. And I literally just Googled one day and career came up. I was like, okay, that could be interesting because um, I love Korean history. So, yeah, it, it happened. I went there and I was on an island called Jeju, which is like Hawaii. Super tropical, super nice. And it was just, it was a life-changing experience. You know, wherever I was, everyone was like beautiful and everyone was nice. And I was like, why can't I look like that? Then I started having surgery and then it's kind of, maybe it's become a little bit of an addiction since then. I can't seem to stop, but hey. Before we get to the uh, surgical transformation, what is it about South Korean culture that you were so taken with, so impressed with and wanted to be such a, a part of? I mean, South Korea really has the full package. So you have the music, the K-pop, which I know you're just playing BTS. Um, and I know you're a fan as well of them. Um, but uh, yeah, it's got the music, the Korean dramas, the culture, the food. I just found the people as well, the sweetest people um, in the world. They were so kind, so friendly, so welcoming. I just felt very accepted. But yeah, Korea really has everything, you know, the entertainment, the the nightlife, the the travel, they've got mountains, they've got places to go skiing, and they've got tropical islands. It was just like, for me, I felt like I was in heaven. It was like being in paradise. In terms of the food, you don't find that Korean cuisine uses too much kimchi? You know, it's really difficult for me because I'm actually, like, vegan, so I can't really eat much. They do like their seafood in Korea, but the kimchi, yeah, kimchi's in a lot of things, and some people even have it on, like, toast. Some people have it for breakfast and i don't really do that i do have it for with like uh you can have kimchi pancake kimchi fried rice but it's a very acquired taste so for anyone listening that's not tried it like just be prepared it's a little bit spicy it's like pickled cabbage it's a bit unusual but you know i i love it and it's great for the skin as well <laughs> is that true it actually is it's really good for your immune system for the body and it makes the skin glow have you been to our korea town here in uh, in manhattan of course i was there yesterday and the day before and what's your take on the culture in korea town whether it's the cuisine or the karaoke joints or the people what's your take on korea town i mean it's so fun it's obviously not the same as being in korea because it's obviously more americanized but it's uh it's great you know it's a great vibe i went for lunch yesterday with my friend um alia and then i went the night before to this really cool bar had all the k-pop music i just love the vibe you know everyone that goes there has fun there's no attitude everyone's like friendly the music's great you get to meet people you know korean people and they're always very friendly and they're always very accepting of me you know people seem to have a thing online you know trolls they think oh you really offend korean people but no every korean person i meet they like love what i do and they appreciate me loving their culture oh, we're talking with uh, ollie london an internet personality singer and a transracial uh, social media influencer Tell me about your fondness for K-pop music and uh, your enthusiasm for K-pop music. What makes K-pop music so special? I mean, I think everyone knows what K-pop is, but at this point, you know, thanks to the last few years, we've had BTS and there's been so many groups that have broken in America. You've got Blackpink, you've got uh, Monster X, uh, uh, Super M. There's just so many groups at the moment. And uh, K-pop is just like the performance is perfection. It's like the way they look, the way they dance, the way they sing, the styling. And also it's so positive. Like when you listen to a K-pop song, there's no profanity. It's all like very uplifting. Mm. 
And it's like, it's, it, you know, I feel like K-pop is a positive influence and positive role model for people around the world. And it also connects people, you know, from any country, you know, whatever language you speak. Like, you know, I can't fully understand Korean, but just listening to the songs makes me happy. You don't need to understand the lyrics to enjoy it and stuff. And I just think, yeah, K-pop is a very uplifting thing. It's super catchy as well. Um, um, I've made a few K-pop songs myself and I, you know, always focus on making the chorus have a hook. You know, it's got to get stuck in someone's head, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Like you want it to stay in someone's head. So not only does it sounds good, it sound good, but it, and it's upbeat, but it's got a positive message generally. Right. I mean, you know, you have obviously hip hop and R and B, and that can have profanity in it. And sometimes the music videos aren't great for a younger audience. Whereas K pop is super innocent. It's you know, the lyrics are normally about love or something positive, something inspiring, like about making it. Uh, in the world. So I just, yeah, I just feel like it's, it's very positive. Let's discuss your decision to become transracial. Now, I think a lot of people can empathize with almost everything you've said thus far, uh, mm-hmm. be, falling in love with a, another country's culture, the cuisine, the music, the people. I, I think, you know, you've alluded to the fact that you've had 20 surgeries to look uh, Korean. Now, mm-hmm. how, does one decide to make that decision to have surgery mm-hmm. to look like another ethnic group? Hmm. Yeah, it was a long process for me. I mean, again, it really goes back to when I lived in Korea. So I'd never, I'd always wanted, you know, to change myself. I was never happy with the way I looked, but I never necessarily wanted to be Korean. It was just like being in Korea. When you look at people like the billboards, the TV shows, everyone has this look. It's like this, you know, a K-pop idol look. And I was like, I would love to look like that. I was so unhappy. I had a big nose and I didn't like my eyes. So it was like, that's really where it developed. So it just purely developed. I just wanted to change my looks and improve my image. And then then I just, you know, started to become a little bit addicted um, and had quite a few more procedures. And uh, yeah, then I was just like, the last few years, I've just been so in love with Korean culture. I watch all the TV shows, learn the language, uh, cook Korean food, uh, ha- hang out with my Korean friends. And I was like, I actually feel Korean, you know, I don't, you know, I love my country, the UK and stuff, but I don't feel British. Hmm. You know, when I'm around Korean people, I feel like, I don't know, I just feel like I belong there. I feel like I'm at home, whereas I don't feel like that when I'm in London. It's it's a weird feeling. I'm sure you're aware that uh, some of the criticism that's been leveled towards you involves charges of cultural appropriation. And uh, we've seen this uh, with other people as well. Uh, The most notable example in here in the United States was uh, Rachel Dolezal, Mm -hmm. who, in spite of being the head of an NAACP uh, branch and passing herself off as African-American, was actually was actually white. What do you say uh, to the charges and the criticisms of cultural appropriation? You know, I think we live in the modern times and we embrace all cultures. You know, our clothes may be inspired from, you know, another country. Maybe we have a, a silk jacket that's inspired by Chinese traditional print. Um, So, you know, we live in a multicultural society. We live, uh, you know, we're in New York right now. It's a multicultural city. You have so many different people living here from all over the world. And, you know, we should be embracing that. You know, we shouldn't be categorizing, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. You know, we should just be, you know, appreciating other cultures, appreciating the style you know, as long as we're not doing something to purposely offend people, you know, and people seem to think, oh, I'm super offensive. But when, you know, I actually speak to Japanese, Korean people, Chinese people, they really like think, oh, it's fascinating what I do. Like the fact that I love uh, Asian culture so much, they appreciate it. But yeah, cultural appropriation is like, it's obviously a thin line. That's normally when you purposely want to offend someone. 
And that's not my intention. It never has been my, you know, um, my thing is just I appreciate the culture so much to a kind of crazy level. Like, mm. you know, it does sound a bit crazy with all the things I've done. But, um, you know, it's I, I just makes me happy. And I like giving back to the Asian community. And, you know, at the moment, I'm trying to also raise awareness and stop Asian hate. Um, so I did go to the UN today to present a petition, but it's closed because of COVID. Mm. But, you know, I just I just want to. You know, I don't I'm not appropriating any culture. I'm appreciating it and I'm trying to give back at the same time. One of the things that uh, we always hear from the time that we're children is that uh, people should be happy with who they are, uh, whether you're short, whether you're blonde, whether you're uh, thin, whether you're heavy, uh, whatever the case may be. Uh, learn to not just accept, but love who you are. What you've done in getting 20 different surgeries to look different, does that send – now, you have a, a massive following online and elsewhere. Does does see, does your transition uh, and through 20 different surgeries, does that send a poor message to people in general and children specifically that, no, um, you know, you shouldn't be accepting who you are. You should be willing to – transform into something different i mean my message has always been you know just do what makes you happy so i never go out there and encourage you know young people to get plastic surgery because that's you know it's a very difficult decision and i wouldn't want someone to rush into that you know and suddenly see an influencer you know and think okay i want to do surgery to look like him i'm not you know i'm not about that i've done it because it's you know it's something very personal to me it makes me happy makes me confident i just I, you know i share my journey online i share my whole life online and stuff um but, you know, I, I don't want to encourage young people, you know, because everyone is beautiful in their own way, regardless of uh, what we look like. You know, we're all beautiful. But I feel like it's all about a confidence thing. So maybe some people inside, they have never felt confidence, um, you know, and, and they just want to make a change. And I would always uh, support that. You know, I'd always support uh, people doing what makes them happy the most. Um, but, you know, it's there's there's so much influence out there maybe i'm one of the people but like there's people like kim kardashian and people want to emulate that so mm -hmm. people will get a surgery to look like that and i'm not saying that you know i love jimmy and i've had surgery to look like him but i'm doing it for me I'm not doing it you know to try and influence the world it's just i like to share my kind of personal journey with everyone uh, now, the uh, individual you just mentioned jimin 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 is a k-pop star he's mm -hmm. part of that band bts that we began the segment with uh, you you've described publicly how you've tried to look like him. And you're right. We do see this not just with Kim Kardashian, but a lot of other celebrities. How does Jimin feel about the the transition that you've undergone to look physically more like him? I feel like he'd be flattered. I mean, I did try to meet him once. Dr. Phil did ask him if he'd come on a show and see me, but um, he said he was busy. Um, well, his management said he was busy, but I'm, you know, I think I'm going to meet him at some point, but I don't know. Maybe he'd find it a little bit weird. I mean, who knows? Um, you know, I, I don't know if he would find it weird, but um, I'm sure he's a bit flattered that there's someone that loves him that much. They go to that extreme. And now um, you are very much a public persona as a musician, as a social media influencer, as somebody that uh, documents uh, almost every aspect of your life on, uh, on online, Instagram and TikTok and elsewhere. There are going to be some very cynical people out there, and we have a lot of cynical New Yorkers mm -hmm. listening, 
that say that you might go through all this just for greater attention and to build a greater uh, following for yourself. What do you say to that criticism? I've had that criticism before, and I would just say, like, do you people seriously think that someone will go through pain? You know, having surgery is not exactly fun. You have to have a six-week downtime between each surgery. Like, I've had really painful procedures like liposuction, the eye surgery. That's a lot of pain, you know. Why would someone do that, you know, for attention? Like, I, I just, I'm just a very open book, you know. I like to share my life online. I like to share my love of K-pop, Korean culture. I like to speak Korean on my TikToks and try and teach people, I like to share my music. So I'm just, you know, an open book. I share my life. But, uh, you know, I haven't done all this for attention. I Obviously, I get a lot of attention and, uh, you know... I just like to, you know, use my platform while I've got it to promote what I love, which is uh, K-pop. Well, you also have, uh, you're not just a fan of K-pop music, but you've uh, recorded a lot of your own songs, some of which uh, have been quite popular. This is a little bit of uh, Ollie London singing uh, their own song. You know, I'm not used to hearing a lot of K-pop Christmas music, mm. and uh, this was a first for me. Uh, was is there a lot of K-pop Christmas music? There's a few. A few songs came out last year. There's not really much, but they're starting to do it more now. But surprisingly, like this was actually my most popular song ever. Really? I mean, it's had like thirty thousand videos on TikTok using this song. It's like literally, I think it's got like three point two million views or something. But like, even whatever month of the year, people want me to sing that song. Like, I'm on Cameo. I'm always having to sing that song. Like uh, people seem to love it, even though it's about Christmas. They just they just love it. So I was quite surprised and taken aback by that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I just I thought let me make a song for Korea to celebrate. They don't really celebrate Christmas that much, but I was like, let me give them some festive spirit and give back to them and try and make them smile, make them laugh, and uh, they seem to love it. If people want to uh, get, hear some of your music, what's the best way for them to hear it? Um, so I have a YouTube channel, which is uh, Ollie London, so all my music videos are on there, and I've got Spotify and iTunes as well, so yeah, all my songs are on there. So that's O-L-I London, they could search that on mm-hmm. YouTube, and that uh, that comes right up. There's also been some criticism of you that uh, the transition that you're undergoing and uh, the uh, way that you have referred to yourself as transracial could actually be harmful to the transgender community. So you're getting it from all angles. You're getting criticism from everybody. What do you say to that criticism that uh, what you're doing is harmful to the transgender community? That's probably the biggest thing I get on Twitter. I mean, I get attacked so much by kind of trans activists. um, And I just think, you know, they should be a bit more understanding after what they've been through personally. You know, I support all people. And obviously, they've obviously had to go through the emotion of transitioning and changing and, you know, uh, chopping parts up and changing things and stuff. So it's like, how how are they to judge me? You know, they've probably been bullied a lot. They've probably struggled. Like, how can they judge me? You know, I'm in the same category as them. I'm someone that uh, struggles with identity issues. I've had surgery to change. Uh, you know, I identify as transracial. Like, why would why should they judge me? You know, because, you know, I could judge them, but I don't. You know, I, I support them. I support all people. But I just feel like that particular group, they can be quite, um, quite hateful to people that... Um, don't share their worldview, which is, uh, you know, it's very sad. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, we hear a lot about South Korea culturally these days, but when it comes to the geopolitical scene, we've heard a great deal about 
North Korea. What do uh, the South Korean people that you interacted with when you were living there and in the subsequent conversations that you've had with them online, how do they feel about North Korea's place in the international community? And what do you think about uh, kind of North Korea being a, a bit of an international pariah? So I've actually visited the uh, demilitarized zone. Um, it was quite fascinating just to look over the border because you look through these binoculars and there's literally ghost towns. They just have facades of buildings. So it's, it's a very bizarre um, place. But generally in Korea, Kim, you know, Kim's crazy. He's always firing missiles here, there and everywhere. Sure. And the Koreans, they don't really take any notice. You know, they don't pay attention. I think Kim just does it to get the attention of the United States and, you know, China, whatever. Like, they just don't pay attention, you know, they're never worried about him shooting a missile, because his missiles, they just go into the sea anyways, obviously not got good aim, but like, um, they they really don't care about it, and... Um, the, they don't lie awake at night no, worried about a new Korean no, war. No, they just think, like you know, Kim's uh, crazy and just ignore him, but the interesting thing is they, they have built a train station near the border um, that stops just before North Korea, and uh, it's like, it's bizarre, you go into the train station that says Pyongyang, the next train, and there's no time. So they do want to reunify the country, and that train is ready for the day when they reunify, and uh, you know they'll make the track into North Korea. Do you, so, do you think we'll ever see a Korean unification in your lifetime? Um, you know, I don't know what my thoughts are on that because it's obviously a very contentious issue, and obviously it used to be one country, you know, until the Korean War. So I wouldn't necessarily give my opinion on that, but I, I, I think you know, um, I don't know what Koreans think about it, but I know it's a possibility. But not obviously with Kim Jong Un um, and his family because mm-hmm. you know they're authoritarian. They just you know obviously not mentally stable. They're very crazy and stuff. And um, you know if if one day the North Korean people rise up, or if there's another political issue that will change the system, you know then there's certainly a possibility. Uh, I met you last year. We had a, a good time. We met for drinks and uh, got caught up. And then I, since then I became. Quite a, a, a follower of all your various public's going public goings on on social media and elsewhere, and you can imagine my surprise and my disappointment mm-hmm. when I learned on Instagram that you were dead. It was actually reported on Instagram yeah. that you were dead, yeah. and your Instagram page became a memorial page. And here you are; you're as alive as I Thank am, God. if not more so. How did you end up being dead on Instagram? Well, I couldn't believe that actually happened. Like, I didn't even know that was a thing. So basically, I get trolled all the time. So I've had my TikTok taken down seven times, and then it always gets put back up and stuff. So I literally get targeted all the time. I've had my Twitter. There's so many people attempt to hack my Twitter. But yeah, the Instagram, I literally woke up one day, and every time I wake up, I just check Instagram, what's going on, look at the stories and stuff. And I couldn't log on. So I tried to log on. I thought, okay, someone's hacked my account. And then it literally said... Uh, I couldn't log on or something. There's a problem. So then I Googled my Instagram and it said something about in memorandum, which means you're dead. And that's obviously a thing that Instagram introduced um, over the last few years, you know, for accounts that want to stay at the families, want to keep the account up to honor the memory. So, yeah, I couldn't log in for 24 hours. And then I was like, I had so many calls from my family and friends and they were going crazy. Like, you're, you know, are you OK? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. What's wrong? And like they were just panicking, panicking about that. And then like suddenly it was on Twitter and it became the third biggest trend in the United States. Right. It was uh, the number one trend in Brazil, trending in 30 countries. But how did the trend get started? How did people get to think that you were dead? Well, I literally didn't say anything because I was trying to figure it out. I was trying to speak to Instagram, um, you know, because I have an Instagram account. And I was just trying to speak to them and figure it out. And during that process, like, it spread like wildfire on Twitter. And uh, everyone was, like, saying horrible things like, oh, you faked your own death for attention. Because, like, you know, people always say to me, oh, he's just doing it for attention, which I don't. You know, I just share my life. But like when when people said that, I was like, this is really bad. 
you know, because, uh, you know, these haters are trying to spread this message about me that's not true. And then I've got my family and friends concerned about me. Like, it's not a it's not a thing you joke about. Sure, you know? of course. You know, people joking about something. That's just one thing you don't talk about and joke. You know, it's funny. A, a story that we did the other day was the dispute that's going on between Kim Kardashian and her estranged mm. husband, Kanye West, about whether or not their eight-year-old daughter should be able to go on TikTok. Kim Kardashian says that this is her way of uh, expressing herself, and she's monitoring it to make sure that uh, she's not doing anything harmful. Kanye West seems to take an opposite view. What's your view? As somebody that's sort of a social media star yourself, do you think eight years old is an appropriate age to be expressing yourself on TikTok? I think it's very harmful to have children on social media. I think, you know, they shouldn't be on social media until they're like 16, 18, because it's really? It, it really has a detrimental effect. You know, you get uh, kids going on there and... If it's not monitored by their parents, they can get hate comments. And, you know, some children have in the past committed suicide based on uh, comments and abuse they've received online, which is uh, completely unacceptable. And a lot of um, social media, they don't actually have checks in place for identification. Hmm. So anyone can sign up, you know, anyone can sign up. So, like, I think they need to introduce something where you have to have some kind of proof of age and, you know, have some kind of limit, whether it's 13, whether it's 16, you know. Uh, I just think it's 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 a dangerous place for kids. You know, there's a lot of um, abusive things on there. There's uh, predators on there and stuff. It's uh, it's it's not a positive place. It, when I was promoting your appearance today, and I'm uh, thrilled that you were able to come in studio, uh, a few people different emailed me that had seen you on Dr. Phil mm-hmm. or had seen you on the documentary series Botched. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was one common word that a number of people used in describing you. And that was the word troubled. Uh, do you feel that you're a troubled person or do you feel that your your outlook uh, psychologically and mentally is a healthy one? I mean, I admit that I'm kind of crazy. Like, uh, I'll go with that. But I'm um, troubled. I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, maybe I have issues, identity issues, but uh, I don't feel troubled. You know, I'm super happy. I just feel like everything I've done has given me confidence to be happy and to succeed. And, you know, happiness is the key to life. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's trouble. All of these things I've done is to make myself happy and to promote Korean culture. But, uh, you know, I was, of course, I have maybe some, maybe I'll admit it here, world exclusive that I have an addiction to plastic surgery, maybe. But, um, you know, I, I'm very grounded. I'm like super down to earth. I'm super like chilled out. And uh, I wouldn't say trouble. I would, you know, I'll take the word crazy. That's that's cool. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I've been called worse. And I, <laughs> I would call myself crazy. Me too. Now you're you're in town for you're in New York for uh, for Fashion Week. How's Fashion Week been going? What have you been doing since you've been in town for Fashion it's Week? It's been so busy. Obviously, this season's not as big as uh, September because of COVID and stuff. And it's also really cold in New York right now. Mm. It's like icy cold, so it's kind of hard to be stylish and fashionable. But um, I've gone to quite a lot of shows. And um, my favorite was uh, Frederick Anderson, who's a friend of mine. He's a women's wear designer, and his collection was just stunning. And then I've been to uh, several Korean designers. Um, I went to an amazing Korean show last night. The singer Ava Max was there. There was a lot of um, people there, and it was just incredible. Then today I went to uh, an Asian designer showcase. It was six different Mm -hmm. uh, Asian designers, um, and I spoke with all the designers. Um, I'm filming my new German TV series on RTL. So they're following me around the world, doing different things. Congratulations, so, that's great. Yeah, thank you. Um, I don't speak German, but they 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 dub dub my voiceover and stuff. But um, yeah, so we interviewed designers, um, met the models and stuff, looked at the outfits, and it's been really fun. It's been hectic, but um, fun.
Now, you're also on Cameo, so if people want to get you for a Cameo to give a birthday greeting or a, an anniversary greeting, they can find you on Cameo. Just search Ollie London on Cameo. Right. Or, yeah, my um, Cameo is cameo.com slash London Ollie. And, you know, I can do birthdays. Uh, I can roast people. Sometimes people like me to roast them or to sing. You know, I don't have the best voice in the world. But like, I get asked to sing Christmas in Korea literally every I day. I can imagine. And it's bizarre. It's like a Christmas song. But, yeah, so I, I, my, I mean, my Cameo is very, very good. It's the third most... Uh, popular celebrity in the uk uh for the uk market and stuff and have so many u.s requests so yeah are you are you on there yeah i'm not i'm not i have i I feel like nobody would want my uh i think you would get a lot of bookings frank honestly yeah really so hey so you've lived in the uk you've Mm -hmm. lived in los angeles you've lived in Mm -hmm. south korea Mm -hmm. what would you say are the key cultural differences between living in each of those three places um so if you've never been to asia it's a little bit of a culture shock when you go there um, you know, everything is like very fast. The technology, like you'll be on the subway system and you'll see these instead of like just a paper billboard, it's like this TV and it goes super, super fast. So like it's, it's very fast and it's kind of exhausting when you first go there. Cause like you have so many sensual things, the eyes, the smell of the food and stuff. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit of a culture shock when you go there, but once you get used to living there, it just becomes incredible. So it's an amazing place. Um, America, like I love America. It's like, it's, it's my, Korea is my favorite country, but um, I love America so much. I just think America is so diverse and you've got such – everyone's so nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, they certainly are. Like, yeah, sometimes yeah. on social media they're not, but in real life they tend to <laughs> Everyone be. Everyone in real life is always nice. Uh, it's like, yeah. So if, if people want to follow you, what you're doing musically, or they want to see what happens with the 21st surgery, the best place <laughs> to do that is on Instagram or, or, or yeah. where else? Yeah, so I do have a 21st surgery. Actually. Um, it's coming up, I think, next month. But oh, um, I know. Oh, God. Um, yeah, so Instagram is at London Ollie, and then TikTok is at Ollie London. And then, yeah, YouTube, uh, Ollie London, that's just for all the music, and you guys can sing along to Christmas in Korea. Absolutely. <laughs> Ollie London, it's a real treat to have you in studio. I'll look forward to seeing you the next time you're in New York. Definitely. Real pleasure. Thank you so much, Frank. Thank you. The pleasure yeah. is mine. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Diamonds are forever. They are all I need to please me. They can stimulate to tease me. They won't leave in the night. I've no fear that they might desert me. Diamonds are forever. Hold one up and then caress it. Touch it, stroke it, and then dress it. That is the great Shirley Bassey singing Diamonds Are Forever, a song that was uh, sampled on the song Diamonds by Kanye West. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Do you know of another tele- uh, do you know of another radio show in America that could have Rick Santorum talking about the uh, Convention of States project? Followed by, within 20, 30 minutes, Ollie London, the 
Internet's first transracial social media influencer. I don't. So, I mean, how could you not listen to this show? You don't know what's coming next. I I think this is terribly exciting. If I was a radio listener, I know I'd be glued to this show. And then, you know, when I promoted, and I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash Morano fan, I promoted what we have coming up, you know, and uh, said, you know, hope people listen. And then a woman writes, and you could see this, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Woman comments, not interested. I'll listen to some interesting podcasts. Now, all I could think is, what podcast could you possibly find that is more interesting than this? Come on, this is great stuff. And just when you thought it was safe to turn on your radio, business is about to pick up. You know who's going to be here in a half hour? Dom Crispino. Do you remember Dom Crispino? Dom Crispino was a terrific attorney, ran for state assembly, very reputable guy. All of a sudden, boom, becomes a criminal, goes to prison, does seven or eight years in prison, comes out of prison, becomes a radio talk show host. That's when I got to know him. Not an attorney anymore, so he was an ex, ex, ex-attorney ex and an ex-con. Then, lo and behold, gets arrested again for practicing law without a license, among other things. And then uh, goes to prison, goes on trial, represents himself, goes to prison, and then just last year, his conviction gets vacated. So, I mean, you talk about an interesting guy who knows uh, about the law from multiple different aspects. It's him. We're going to pick his brain on a number of hot-button legal cases and get his perspective as both an ex-attorney and an ex-felon. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to that conversation. Now, um, I got word, some very positive news from uh, my wife, Rachel, who's listening. She informs me that my son just slept five hours, which I think is a new record for him. So that's very exciting. And uh, congratulations to him. And uh, he's also a lucky fella because my mom, his grandmother, and it's her first grandchild. She went to the bank the other day, I think last Saturday, and she wanted to get him a couple of dollar coins, you know, commemorative dollar coins. And she used to do the same thing with me. She it still does. She gives me the Saka Ochoa dollar, the uh, Susan B. Anthony dollar, you know, the neat little dollar coins. Lo and behold, she goes to the bank. She gives them two dollar bills. The teller comes back and says, you know, I'm sorry. We only have these two coins. And brings back a couple of coins. One uh, was, I think, a Benjamin Harrison dollar coin. The other was a silver dollar from, I think, something like 1893 or 1903. I think 1893, though. My mother goes home and looks up the value of this silver dollar, and it was something like $30. She didn't know about it at the time, but this bank gave her a silver dollar in exchange for a regular paper dollar that's worth $30. I mean, what are the chances of that? I'm sure that was an error on the bank's part, but uh, I don't think my mother is rushing to give that back anytime soon. She's uh, hoping this is the beginning of a a coin collection for young karma. But lesson learned is if you want to take your chance, go go to the bank and ask for a few dollar coins. Never know what you'll get. Hey, we'll take your calls next. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Keep asking questions. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, did you go to preschool? I did. Uh, I went to, I believe it was the, it's called It's a Small World Preschool. And I liked it. I had a good uh, good experience there. I'm trying to remember some of my preschool teachers. Um, Miss Stephanie was one of them. And um, I don't think I kept in touch with any of my chums from preschool. I do remember my preschool graduation, though, I must say. Um, and, uh, it was fun. It was a good graduation. I, I don't understand why, why they have a preschool graduation. I mean, what are you really celebrating? I, I, I've never understood preschool graduations, kindergarten graduations. I mean, come on. I mean, it's just, I mean, what, did, what did you learn how to do really? Did you learn how to finger paint? Uh, I mean, what, what would have been failing in preschool failure to use the water table? I mean, I don't know, but. That's neither here nor there. That's a subject for another day. And a surprisingly controversial one. I brought that up before, and I was blown away at the number of parents and educators alike who felt that I was uh, way off base. But put that aside. Put put that aside. I read this um, really interesting study about preschool. And all of a sudden, I'm much more interested in this stuff now that I'm a parent. I've always been interested in this stuff, and I've always wanted to be a parent, but I'm all of a sudden paying much more close attention to this. When I when I uh, read these articles in the news, I read them through the lens of a uh, of a parent. Now, so Dale Farron is a researcher who spent a decade studying over a thousand children who went to a state run preschool. And a a control group of children that wanted to but didn't get in and is shocked and dismayed by what she discovered. Listen to this. And I was pretty shocked by this as well. By sixth grade, the preschool kids were doing – you ready for this? This blew me away. By sixth grade, the preschool kids did worse – all around. Understand what I just said. By sixth grade, the pre-K kids in this study by Dale Farron were doing worse all around. Worse on reading, worse on math, worse on science scores. They had more learning disorders, more discipline problems, including serious ones that got them suspended. Um, Farron told NPR... It really has required a lot of soul-searching. Having studied early childhood education for decades, this woman is now pondering what were the plausible reasons that may account for this. One theory she has is that free pre-K, which was the hallmark of the de Blasio administration, and as somebody that now has to figure out a way to pay for child care when my wife goes back to work next week, I'm all for that, but... One theory she has 
is that free pre-K doesn't look like pricey pre-K. Well-off parents usually send their children to programs that have lots of time for art, music, and especially unstructured play. Um, The richest children get to play in the forest with sticks and mud even sometimes. Uh, This was not what Farron is seeing in classrooms full of children in poverty. Instead, she was seeing children stuck tracing letters on worksheets or trying not to squirm as teachers delivered lectures. The children also spent a lot of time simply schlepping from one activity to another while being told to pipe down and don't touch. Beyond that, the state-run schools were told to provide the kids with five and a half hours of instructional time each day. Now, preschoolers and the age studied here, four years old, four years old. So this, so conducted in tandem with a team of Vanderbilt University researchers, Farron's study arrives at either the best or the worst time. Just as there's talk of reviving President Biden's Build Back Better proposal, which would provide free state-run preschool for all three- and four-year-olds. Dr. Peter Gray is a Boston College psychology professor and the co-founder of a website and an organization called Let Grow. And I've had Lenore Skenazi, the co-founder of Let Grow, on this show many times. Dr. Peter Gray, uh, who's also the author of one of the most popular college psychology textbooks, considers the timing auspicious. Quote, if this study doesn't put the nail in the coffin of academic training to little children, it's hard to imagine what will. Here's how the study unfolded. About 3,000 kids applied for the free pre-K program, which was open only to low-income families in Tennessee. A lottery determined who got in, so it created this natural A and B split. Two demographically identical groups, same ethnically, same socioeconomically. One that got into the program staffed by fully licensed teachers and the other a control group on their own. No pre-K until kindergarten. Of the kids in the control group, the majority, 63 percent were simply cared for at home. The rest were pretty evenly divided between Head Start and private child care. Either way, these were all kids living below the poverty line. At first, it like it looked like the kids who'd won the lottery had, well, won the lottery. They did better on academic tests when entering kindergarten. But by third grade, those gains were already reversing. By sixth grade, the pre-K kids were 48% more likely to have committed a behavioral offense and 75% more likely to have been diagnosed with a learning disorder. Meantime, on the achievement tests, the gap kept growing with the pre-K kids at the bottom. My question for you is, what do you think about this? Are you as surprised as I was? 800 848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. If you would have uh, bet me $1,000 on the results of this study, I would have been $1,000 poorer. I never would have predicted the 
kind of results that we're seeing in this Dale Farron study. Now, Dr. Gray believes that these outcomes were predictable, not by me, but by him. When kids are pushed into academics before they're ready, he says it disrupts the natural unfolding of curiosity, mastery, and joy. It's like being forced to take poker lessons before mastering Go Fish. And after reading that, that makes sense. It does make sense. Kids feel lost. They feel bored and they feel dumb. And they may decide that they hate school or that the only way to escape is by acting out. You compare that to plain old playing where kids discover how to make things happen, how to try out new ideas and make friends. This requires learning self-management, the ability to hold yourself together enough that other kids want to play with you. Those are real lessons and some of life's biggest. And, of course, there's always time for academics later. So what Dr. Gray is saying is that public preschool should be play-based and modeled on the successful private preschools who have continued with this curriculum, despite pressure from parents and, and a lot of educators to push learning the ABCs, reading and math from boring handouts. That's the word from Arlene Verga, a retired educator and executive director of a children's sports association that served tens of thousands of students in New York City. What say you? 800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Now, one country that they're pointing to as a country that may have gotten this right is Germany. And it is apparently something that the Germans figured out 50 years ago. In a Psychology Today piece on this Tennessee study, Dr. Gray recounts an enormous educational experiment in the 70s. Listen to this. The German government was trying to decide whether it would be a good idea or not to start teaching academic skills in kindergarten rather than maintain kindergarten as purely a place for play, for stories, for singing and the like, as it had always been before. Remember, kindergarten is a German word. So they conducted a controlled experiment involving 100 kindergarten classrooms. They introduced some academic training training into 50 of them and not into the other 50. The graduates of academic kindergartens performed better on academic tests in first grade than others, but then the difference substantially faded. And by the fourth grade, they were performing worse than the others on every measure in the study. Specifically, they scored more poorly on tests of reading and arithmetic and were less well-adjusted socially and emotionally. I don't know about you, but I find the combination of these two studies, the German study and the Tennessee study, pretty convincing. That if you're a three-year-old or a four-year-old, you should not be trying to learn the alphabet. You should be playing and singing and, and doing the things that traditionally children do. What do you think? 800 848 WABC, that's 800-848-9222-1234. open lines before we get to my favorite, one of my favorite, ex-felon, uh, ex-cons and ex-attorneys. And believe it or not, I actually know many former attorneys that are also convicted felons. Let me begin with Larry in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yeah, well, as far as, far, hello. 
As far as the academic uh, thing goes, I wanted to comment on the on Ali London, but I'll just say. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, go ahead. So, you, comment on whatever you like, Larry. It's your dime. <clears throat> well, okay. First thing I want to say, I, I believe in the results of that study because of, I extrapolate it to college. And basically, college students, I believe, are, are too young for college. There should be uh, an interruption, and they should go to college in their mid to late 20s once they become intellectually curious. Because I don't think that they do college justice. So I think that study is validated by by the by the college example uh, more, uh, more than anything. Because after all, three or four year old, it's just a study. Okay. Now, as far as Ali Ludden goes, um, you know, I, it's very important to point out that he is not the first transracial uh, person. Michael Jackson was. And well, but but Michael Jackson never really embraced being transracial. I think that's the difference. Right. Now, and, and there's also a, a very other important difference. I never thought that I would present, or nor did anybody else, Michael Jackson as a paradigm of health until I ran into this guy. Okay? And uh, basically, my, they're coming from two different uh, scenarios. Michael Jackson was rejecting his blackness. Okay? It was, and, and, and who said – we can't say whether it's for good or bad reason – Okay, certainly if you want to say it's for good reason, he has ample reason to say that. All the stereotyping and the fact that there are features that are made fun of over the years. He lives in a white-dominated country. He was trying to be white, and there are mulatto people, frankly. So he was really not trying to invent anything new. This guy decides he likes Korean culture, so he's going to depersonalize himself. And he said, and he said something very dangerous. He said, he's speaking out of two sides of his mouth, and I don't know if I have to say no pun intended with this guy. But um, do all the surgeries, maybe he has a ten size to his mouth. I, I don't mean to be mean, but he said that you asked him about children, and he says, "Well, I wouldn't encourage plastic surgery, but if, if after many years you see you don't have confidence, what? The answer is to no confidence, to depersonalize yourself, and to ch- and to de- dis- no, not not depersonal, dismantle yourself. A lot of people have to wait till they're in their thirties to have confidence." Okay, I'm an example of that, okay? You have to have patience sometimes. You have to go through graduate school. You have to become a a, a, a made person in a profession. Then you have confidence, okay? Not everybody's entitled to have multiple harems of women, like, uh, I don't know, like that, uh, like what, any example you want to give. Andrew Cuomo. Okay? So that's, some, that's something that's very dangerous come, emanating from this guy. All right. Well, I, I, there you go, uh, Larry. Appreciate your perspective. I um, look. I am not a big uh, believer in plastic surgery. I know that may come as a, a shock to many of you who believe that I've had many facelifts over the years, and that's how I'm able to maintain my boyish good looks. But I think plastic surgery is um, potentially very harmful, as you heard Ollie say. It's very painful, and um, I, I really, as I as I raised. I think um, it's much better for people to learn to accept themselves the way they look and so forth rather than uh, change into something that's radically different. But you know what? My, my You know how Star, on Star Trek they have the, the prime directive where their overarching philosophy is they're not supposed to interfere in the cultures of pre-warp civilizations now but meanwhile it was nonsense because they violated that all the time i I mean you watch the original series especially the 
the first season, they, they would cite the prime directive all the time. And then forget about it. They, they would beam right into the center of town with this pre-warp civilization all the time. But whatever. Let's assume that they intended to follow the prime directive. My prime directive is I am the self-proclaimed least judgmental person on Earth. Uh, and again, it might seem a bit of an irony from uh, somebody that uh, sp- spends 40 minutes a week commending and denouncing people. But if you look at the uh, the kinds of people that I socialize with on a regular basis or the kinds of people that uh, show up when I have a party, you will see a collection of some of the strangest people in the world. You will see all sorts of criminals you will see law enforcement. You'll see uh, various ethnicities represented, various sexualities represented. You know why? Because my philosophy is whatever works for you, that's what you should do. I'm not into um, I'm not into projecting my beliefs or whatever my lifestyle is on you. Whatever you want to do, I say, God bless you. Uh, and uh, it's not for me to judge. You know, that's one of the many areas where uh, m- that is one of the many things I have in common with Pope Francis is aside from the similarities with our names. Who am I to judge? You know, it's funny. I am shocked there are not more people weighing in on this pre-K study. I got to tell you, um, I was telling Dominic Carter right before the show. Sometimes I realize every day how little I know about talk radio. And I I hear a lot of people saying, yeah, that's right. That's right. You tell them. Uh, But every day there's at least one subject which I am certain that is really going to resonate with people and which people are really going to want to comment on. And then there are other subjects where I'm sure nobody's going to care. And almost invariably, I'm always wrong. Always wrong. I would have thought there would be parents, preschool teachers, child psychologists, all either agreeing or disagreeing with uh, with this study. Instead, when it comes to preschool, I'm hearing a chorus of crickets, except from the many, many preschoolers in our audience. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. There you have it. Everybody's commenting on that uh, that preschool survey. Jay is in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hello, Jay. How you doing, Frank? There's a lot of grown old white guys crying out here in Cincinnati over the Bengals. I can imagine. Yeah, well, at least the kids had off from school on Monday. Yeah, that's true. Um, But, you know, out out here in rural Ohio, we have outhouses out back that you use the bathroom. You go outside to use the bathroom. We come inside to cook. You lost me on the Korean topic. my cousins back on Long Island, in the summertime, they have cookouts outside, and they go inside to use the bathroom. So are we backward out here in Ohio? We just do things different. There you have it. There you have it, uh, Jay. Absolutely. Nick is in Syracuse. Hello, Nick. Hello, Frank. I wanted to comment on the Convention of States. Um, I didn't hear anyone else call on it yet, but it's a very deep issue. And I appreciate uh, you getting into it. Um, but the, the power structure of D.C., um, the centralized power is huge down there. And the 17th Amendment in particular, um, making the senators elected and from the, the populace instead of appointed from 
the governor and being a watchdog over the money that the states give the centralized government, um, it, it's a huge issue. And all I know these days is that um, D.C. itself is just way too all-powerful. Um, and it's, an, it's a huge issue. And um, I, I am for the Convention of States, but it can't be a rush thing. It's uh, very critical. Well, and, and yeah, and, and again, uh, Rick uh, tended to give long answers, and I am going to have him back on and some other Convention of States people soon. But I didn't get a chance to raise a lot of the potential pitfalls of um, of a convention like this. A lot of conservatives and progressives alike are concerned that uh, this could become something that gets out of control very quickly or – uh, this is something where there's a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of money spent, and yet nothing changes. Let's say the amendments that come out of a convention are not approved. Um, then what was it all? What was it all for? And I am going to raise those issues in future segments yeah. on this. My, my attitude is I'm all for shaking things up. Let's shake things up. Let's see what happens. I was a big advocate. You know, in New York, we have a wonderful feature in every 20 years. New York gets to vote whether or not we want to have a new constitutional convention. And in 2017, I was one of the few people out there saying, yes, you know what, we should. We should have it. And I was killed by the left and the right. The one thing the left and the right had in common is, no, 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 no. We can't have a constitutional convention. The the left was afraid that a whole bunch of right-wing people would get elected as delegates and then strip away all sorts of uh, protections in the New York State Constitution for things like labor and this and that. The right-wing was afraid that all sorts of left-wing people were would get elected as delegates and then uh, create, uh, I don't know, single-payer uh, single government-funded marijuana or something. And my attitude was, it, see, being seeing that opposition from the left and the right, it made me even more for it because all I'm thinking of these people, you guys on the left and the right, what you're afraid of is democracy. You're afraid right-wingers will get elected. You're afraid that left-wingers will get elected. You know what those people would have in common? They'd be elected. So, look, I, I am for exploring a convention of states project. I don't have the kind of enthusiasm that people like Rick Santorum and others have for it. I think if you're going to put this amount of time, money, uh, effort, organizational effort into organizing around an issue, you're better off just informing people about that issue, whether the issue is term limits or or a number of the other proposals that might come out of that Article 5 convention. But again, don't get me wrong. I, I'm leaning, I would lean towards it. Uh, and look, one of the reasons we decided to do it, and I neglected to mention this in my discussion with Santorum, one of the reasons that we... Um, are talking about this is because two more states just approved this. So now you're seeing up to 17 states have approved this call for a convention. We're still a long way away from the 34 that's needed for a convention to happen, but they're getting there. They're getting there. And depending on how you count, and again, it's a little complicated, depending on how you count, there's 27 states that have approved a convention but uh, with with respect to the language of the Convention of States project, they're only counting it as 17. But we're going to delve into this in a future show as well. 800-848-WABC. Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Good morning, Frank. Uh, 
Yeah, about the pre-K. I, I, I've often thought of when I hear about the pre-K because, you know, I'm old school. I went to kindergarten, which was the original preschool. Then they came up with a preschool for the preschool. And I th- I've always thought the kids should be home, I, I don't know, just doing kid stuff. And like you said, using his imagination, not being told what he should think at that age. He should come up with things on his own. And then once you got an idea how to do that, you can listen to people and learn. But you, you got to learn from yourself first. Also, you also mentioned why no one's calling about certain subjects and other subjects everyone wants to talk about. That's because you're so good, Frank. You delve into things so many ways to Sunday that by the time you finish we have nothing to say because we're not as bright as you. you well, that's us- not true, Rick, especially in your case. Uh, you're very kind to say that. Thank you. Uh, I'm not sure about that, uh, but uh, you never know. Block is in New Rochelle. Hello, Block. Yeah, I, I want to uh, sort of echo what the previous caller did. He st- stole a bit of my thunder, but on, on the pre-K thing, I think this has been wrongheaded for years. They're trying to teach the kids to read and do mathematics too early. Let them play. Because their mind is gonna, they're gonna get turned off to any kind of instruction if you if you tried to do it too young, and that's what I think is happening. That's why now they're saying they have learning disorders. They probably started them too early. So you think? It sounds like you definitely agree with the conclusion of this Tennessee study, and that your anecdotal experiences is that children who are in preschool doing academic activities too quickly, they don't necessarily turn out to be better adjusted students. Well, not not just uh, anecdotal. Uh, they've studied the Head Start program for oh, decades yeah. no, no, now, well, and they find that it that it really doesn't make a difference. A C student is going to be a C student no matter what you do. Well, thank you, Block. And you know where it does, where it is a bit different is you know where it is helpful in terms of childcare, right? I mean, if you have a three year old, it's very difficult if you have two parents that work, right? And that's where a lot of this stuff um, does come in kind of handy. Greg is in Ohio. Hello, Greg. Hello. Hello. Yeah, I want to tell you about uh, that guy called from Cincinnati about, about a previous. Well, you know, you can't uh, trust anybody from Ohio. That's my experience. <laughs> okay. Well, I think the Bengals got robbed anyhow, but that's another story. But uh, out here in Ohio, we did privies. <laughs> you did what? We did privies. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not understanding the word. You you dig privies? Yeah, privies and outhouse. Oh, 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 I see. Okay, gotcha. I and I'm a bottle collector. I'm a bottle collector. We dig old privies to get the old bottles. Okay, fair enough, Craig. Uh, okay. it makes sense to me. But I want I want to make a comment about Ollie. I don't know if you're still listening or not. Uh, I've been to Thailand 15 times. I love Bangkok. I've been all over Thailand. I've been to Mekong River. I've been all over Thailand. What's amazing over there when you go to a country like in Asia and in Thailand is the people are non-judgmental. That really hit me hard the first time I went over there because the people over there, they, how they accept the ladyboys over there. You know what a ladyboy is? I, I mean, I can, I can guess based on the contextual clues. Uh, well, a ladyboy over there, I mean, they, you're, you're uh, basically a male that wants to be a female, and they get their Adam's apples removed. They get breasts. It's really an amazing thing for an American boy to go there and see that for the first time. Like, What's that lady boy? Right. But the people over there accept them. I mean, it's just like uh, uh, people over here. We're just starting to people are just starting to really 
except the LGB community over there. But over there, it's been going on for years. Well, there you go. Yet another example of why Thailand is so far ahead of us, right? Uh, Gary is in Inwood. Hello, Gary. Gary. Tommy's in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Hey, what's up, Frank? I want to talk about the Convention of States. Yeah, Mark Levin wrote a book on it called The Liberty Amendment. Yes, yes, I'm familiar with it, yes. Yeah, so, you know, there's no way that, you know, the whole reason of of the Convention of States to impose term limits is because they're not going to impose them on themselves. They're not going to vote to to take away power for themselves. Yeah, they're it's, not going to vote on to take away the power, the money, the purse, and all that stuff. They, they, they're not, just not going to do it. Well, again, and again, that's why I tend to be for it, and that's one of the reasons I was for a New York State Constitutional Convention. I do wonder, though, is I mean, the people that would get elected to an Article Five Convention, uh, there's a very good chance they would be the same sort of. Uh, brown-nosing politicians with connections that get elected to Congress and the state legislature now. So I, I, I do, you know, how do you prevent that? It's a chance you got to take. That's, that's right. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I'm for it. I'm yeah, for it. I think I, mean, I am too, Tommy, because Mark's what what do you have to lose? Sorry? Yeah, yeah, Mark's been screaming about it for years. Yeah, no, I know. Mark, I, 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 I've Mark done... Mexler. Yeah, no, no. I've I've interviewed Mark Meckler about this uh, before, and um, the the you know again the the reason that we're talking about it now is because two more states just approved it. So, uh, so that's that. Hey, uh, we're going to talk with Dom Crispino, a former attorney and convicted felon, coming up next. He was also our, one of our honorees at New Year's Eve Eve this year. So I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Uh, big big. Legal News Week, and we're going to delve into some of the legal news that you've been hearing about and some of the news stories that you may not have heard about. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. W-A-B-C. Well, I'm not sure if uh, Sarah Palin is wearing a red dress at the moment, but I would bet that uh, she and the hockey player that she's dating uh, did need to go out and uh, have a few stiff drinks to um, to commemorate the recent action in the Southern District of Manhattan. Maybe, although maybe... It's not as bad as it seems. Here to help us break down that case as well as a number of other legal cases in the news is my friend Dominic Crispino, ex-attorney and uh, ex-con, who is a legal commentator par excellence because he knows the law from uh, every possible way in which you can know it. Dom, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me. Good morning, Frank. I'm uh, I'm honored to be on a show with uh, it's Rick Santorum, Ollie London, and me. It's like a, a modern version of the Three Stooges, yeah, it, which it, is okay, which is okay as long as I'm Mo. <laughs> Dom, there are not a lot of radio shows that you could be on where you're the least controversial guest uh, on, on the show, I'll tell you. 
I got to get used to that. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't. All right. Uh, so you got to explain to me uh, this uh, this Sarah Palin case. So yesterday I was talking about how I was surprised the uh, that Judge Rakoff had uh, dismissed Palin's defamation suit against the New York Times while the jury was deliberating. I didn't understand why he wouldn't simply just let the jury make this decision. And then, lo and behold, um, the jury comes a day later and they find in place of the New York Times. This was uh, Governor Palin's attorney, Kenneth Turkle, outside of Manhattan uh, Federal Court. We obviously have our own view of the evidence and the law and the facts that came out during this trial. And as you all have done all week and last week, you gleaned from it what you gleaned. We're going to evaluate all our options uh, for appeal, all of our options for any further motion practice uh, in court at the trial level, uh, and take it from there. So first tell me, why did the judge dismiss the case if the jury was going to come to a decision anyway? And then give me your take on where this case goes on appeal, Dom. Okay. Well, first of all, Palin and her attorneys knew they were going to lose in the district court. Uh, What this case is about, it's a challenge to the standard that applies to uh, the media uh, under New York Times versus Sullivan, a case from the uh, 60s in the U.S. Supreme Court, which set the standard for uh, a public figure as actual malice, which is a very, very difficult standard. You basically have to show that they knew what they were saying was false or they recklessly disregarded whether it was false or not. Virtually impossible to win one of those cases. What happens here is this is a this, I believe, is a calculated attempt to get this case up the pipe to the Supreme Court because Sullivan has been criticized for many years. So they knew they were going to lose. And the judge knew that the issue going up was going to be the legal issue, which is his thing, because if he believes they didn't even come close to beating the standard, the case doesn't go to the jury. So he's letting the jury make a decision to kind of put an exclamation point on his decision. Everybody knew they were going to come in for um, for the newspaper. But is that unusual for a judge to uh, make a decision about uh, dismissing a claim while the jury is deliberating? I would think... That's the kind of thing that you would go through uh, before the jur- jury begins deliberating. Yeah, he kind of jumped the gun. Usually what they, what they would do, well, what, what you do in that circumstance is either you do it beforehand and the jury never comes back, or you let the jury come in and then you make the decision afterwards saying, although the jury came in, blah, 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 uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to dismiss for this reason. Um, that, can ha- that happens in criminal cases sometimes. Uh, the the judge will reserve on a motion and let the jury decide. And then if he believes there wasn't sufficient evidence, come in after. I think the reason why Judge Rakoff did it in this case was that he knew that there was that that the legal issue is the key here, and and this is the issue that's going to go up. I think that he just held back. He he wanted to like jump out there to let everybody know that where it was going, and then let the jury come in. And what the jury if the jury follows the law. It's no surprise that they came in that way. The question here is what change in the law will the appellate courts, if, if any change, will, will they reach? I think, I think that was the purpose in bringing this suit and taking it this far. Very interesting, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. What do you think happens 
as this goes to the uh, to the uh, appellate court, the circuit court, and then possibly up to the Supreme Court. Do you think they're going to be able to overturn Sullivan? Uh, well, the 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 uh, circuit court won't because it can't. It's held it's held to the Sullivan standard because it's a Supreme Court case. So I I believe they'll affirm the judge's decision, uh, and then they have to they have to convince the Supreme Court to grant a writ of certiorari. You need four judges up there to agree to hear the case. Um, they may sense that they may have those votes on that court, you know, uh, or they wouldn't have brought this. Uh, and uh, if the Supreme Court is willing to look at it, I mean, um, it's, it, it would it would actually be a big blow to media to change that standard because basically uh, you you could almost say anything these days as long as you have some good faith behind it. Yeah, no, no. I, mean, that I, know, would... I, I know from my own case, the press mangled the, uh, the, the the what the cases were about, you know, and. But it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, they 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 had a, they based it on something, even if they got it totally wrong. What they were saying. Yeah, heaven knows. So, uh, I don't want to have to stop defaming people. Yeah, yeah, Frank. I mean, listen, you made a life uh, career out of that. Exactly. You know? exactly. Uh, but by the way, you're a younger man to stop now. <laughs> by the way, in uh, since you brought up your case, uh, do you have uh, any indication in terms of what the Brooklyn DA's office is going to do with with your case? Are they going to retry you or let sleeping dogs lie or something in between? Uh, we, well, I mean, there's some, there's some talk, negotiation, posturing going on now, which I can't talk about. Uh, we, we, it, it, it may have a resolution in the near future. Uh, when it does, I'll be glad to come on and Got talk it. to you about Got it. Got it. Now, uh, speaking of criminal cases... The Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg has gotten a great de- has gotten a great deal of attention initially for putting out this memo in which he uh, told his ADAs to pursue restorative justice instead of prison sentences and uh, listed a whole bunch of um, of of uh, offenses that they were not going to be seeking prison time for or maybe even prosecuting at all then. There was a great deal of controversy about it. Started this whole firestorm. Initially, Alvin Bragg defended it. Then he put out a subsequent memo that seemed to back off this a bit. Tell me, uh, you, give me your take on where we are with this whole Alvin Bragg era in the Manhattan DA's office. I know you actually contemplated running for Manhattan DA a number of years ago. Yeah, that was in the, geez, that was 25 years ago, Frank. It's hard to imagine anything. You remember anything from 25 years ago, but... Uh, yeah, I was involved in Manhattan Republican politics, so my chances of winning that office were, you know, uh, not not high. Let's put it that way. But uh, but I do know a lot about that office, and I know a lot about uh, the politics and 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 and, and the policy. Um, I think uh, Alvin Bragg kind of he, he he backed down because he, they scared him. First of all, the, you know, the governor says she can remove him. I'm not even sure the governor could remove him. It's it's a, uh, she's not even sure. They just said it. I mean, it was funny about some of these politicians is that, you know, they're all advocates of democracy uh, until uh, until somebody gets elected. They don't like you know? <laughs> that is a great point. I've noticed that with individuals as well is everybody's all for elections and choice until those elections result in uh, choices that people might not agree with. Right. Exactly. So uh, Alvin Bragg was very plain about what he was running on. Uh, it was it was restorative justice, kind of like Chesa Bodine in uh, in San Francisco, uh, the uh, the DA in, in Los Angeles, uh, is it Krasner in Philadelphia? Right. All the same thing. 
uh, all the George Soros guys, you know, you know, according to the Republican conspiracy theorists. Um, so he was playing about what he was going to do. And, and, and that memo was, re- was reflective of that. I mean, I have it in front of me right now. Um, there's a lot of good things in that memo. There are, there are you know, what happens is the, the legislature will make laws and they'll define something as a violent crime when really it's not a violent crime. They will, they will, you know, they tinker with this stuff. So it's almost like unrecognizable. What he was trying to do here was trying to impose some sort of order on it and be a little bit more um, forgiving or liberal. Uh, you know, and, and that's, you know, what, what that means to, to us or to his constituents. You know, it's a matter of opinion. Uh, for example, uh, a lot of the recent uh, years have shown that the, the courts have uh, liberalized the prosecutor's view of the burglary statutes such that um, almost almost everything is a residential burglary. Uh, and a residential burglary in New York is defined as a violent crime, even if no violence occurs. And that will require a larger sentence. Um, so what happens here is that he, in his memo, he wrote, we have to view this as to see what happens in these circumstances. Just because it's a burglary involving a hotel and the hotel uh, of a gym in a hotel, for example, and the hotel and the gym is attached to a hotel, doesn't make it a residential burglary. It's a commercial burglary, which has always been prosecuted at a lower level, but prosecuted nonetheless with a significant sentence. So what he's doing here is he's trying to he's trying to play with it a little bit and get it to where it should be. And you know, I, I can't disagree with that. I think I think there's been a lot of overreaching in that. Um, with regard to restorative justice, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, 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 what he's saying is to his assistants is don't look at incarceration first. See if there's a first-time offender who there's something we can do with. If there's something that that, we, that does not require a carceral sentence, which means a jail sentence. Um, I, I can't disagree with that. Having having been in the system, having seen guys who are doing way too much time and then having seen guys who are doing not enough time, that there's an imbalance in the system. So I, I can I can actually respect somebody who's coming in and trying to see if he can put some balance to it, whether or not he's uh, his 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 total plan does that. I mean that's open for debate. Now uh, so, you know I, I commend him for trying. Uh, the one the one question I have about what you just said is you sort of uh, you you seem somewhat dismissive of George Soros getting involved in a lot of these uh, DA's races. Now uh, George Soros is one of the big funders of the Political Action Committee. Color of Change and Color of Change, that pack has spent a lot of money in all the DA's races that you just mentioned, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York. So, I mean, it's not necessarily a a Republican conspiracy theory. I mean, it is it is reality, right? Well, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. I mean, but I I don't think they're imposing upon anybody uh, an agenda. I mean, they're just backing up people, I guess, with certain ideas. Right. Um, Right. And, you know, I, I. Listen, both sides have both sides have conspiracy theories about the other side, and, you know, and, and and I have a conspiracy theory because they have conspiracy. Theories, <laughs> well, you know? that's for sure. <laughs> hey, uh, you are somebody that's uh, served time in state prison, and you have run for the state legislature. I'm not sure how many people can say that, but one person who can is Eddie Gibbs. Now, Eddie Gibbs believes that he is the first 
formerly incarcerated person to be elected to the state legislature here in New York. And he believes that this is a, a great story about rehabilitation and redemption. As somebody that, uh, that's been in state prison and run for the state legislature, give me your take on uh, the Eddie Gibbs story. Are you hoping that this is the first of many uh, people that have been incarcerated that end up serving in legislature or in other elective offices? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, there's no reason why you shouldn't. I mean, Eddie Gibbs' story is, is, is not an atypical story. He, uh, he it was a manslaughter case. I think he got a one to three. Uh, he was really defending himself. He In that case, he probably, if, if he had not gotten bad legal advice, the case should have never been indicted. He should have never been charged, should have never gone to jail. But what happens is, you know, they make they make a little offer. They, they tell you know the, uh, the the legal aid attorney will tell him, hey, listen, um, you'll you'll you know you'll 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 you're you're in right now. You can't make bail. Uh, time's going to accumulate anyway. Take this one to three. You'll be home, and you know you'll be home in six months. Um, it, it, it's a story I've heard a million times, uh, and he defended himself. If you look at it, it, the guy didn't even commit a crime. If you think about it, from what I understand about the case. So there are a lot of there are a lot of Eddie Gibbs out there. Um, yeah, it, but I, I will add this: I do believe that we will have more people who get elected to offices with criminal records. I mean, it's inevitable. I mean, fifty percent of Americans uh, will be arrested in their lifetime. One out of three people will have a, a, a criminal record, although some will be misdemeanors, felonies, whatever the case may be. I mean, you can't have done what happened in the last 40 years, increased prosecutions, increased prison sentences, uh, increased plea deals because pleas dispose of 95% of cases and people take them just to get out of there. Um, You cannot do that without getting deep into the population. You've marked a lot of people with this. So it's not a surprise that at a certain point it's going to shake out and you're going to have people getting elected to office with these things. Mm. Let's say you're an 18-year-old kid who's caught uh, uh, making a felony drug sale and uh, and you do two years in prison, but you get your life turned around, you go to college um, and uh, you get a job, you become a good citizen. And, you know, 20 years later in, in your neighborhood, you become a little bit of a leader. Why couldn't you get elected to the city council? Oh, yeah, I, I completely agree. I can't believe if you, uh, uh, you know, we live in the same community. I'd vote for you if you ran for office. That's for sure. Um, uh, let, let me I'm, differ. I wouldn't. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Kessa Bodine, the district attorney in San Francisco. He is saying that police there in California are using DNA collected from sexual abuse survivors to investigate unrelated offenses. He says the practice could be unlawful and might actually dissuade people from reporting sex crimes. What do you think? Oh yeah, he's right, hundred percent right. I think he's. I think the whole thing is in San Francisco is that he's in a he's in a battle with the police. Uh, the police don't necessarily agree with his policies. Um, maybe in a way that the police here don't agree with um, um, Alvin, Alvin Bragg's policy. Yeah, uh, and I I think the um, they're like they're they're trying to like every which way to maneuver around stuff. I I, I think it's inherently bad. You have somebody who comes in who's a victim of a sex crime. Obviously, there's got to be a rape kit done because there's got to be physical evidence. I mean, listen, you can get a conviction for 
uh, a sex offense without physical evidence, but with the physical evidence makes it, you know, you have DNA, things that would help get a conviction. Um, they, they increase the odds, obviously. Uh, so if, if they're using that to then check the DNA against the DNA database to see if the person making the complaint is wanted for something or, um, or uh, they, you know, they're, they did a burglary or something or whatever the case may be. Or how about this one? They check that DNA and then run a, a, a search against the family DNA and, and get the secondary DNA of somebody else in there yeah, and put them in there. I, I mean, I, it's very frightening. It's one of the key reasons I'm not eager to give one of my, my DNA to one of these DNA testing uh, genealogy, uh, genealogical websites because uh, who knows what's going to happen, not just for me, but one of, uh, you know, one of my relatives. Uh, Dom, you were one of our honorees for New Year's Eve Eve in Atlantic City last year. Well, how would you describe your experience uh, for, as your first New Year's Eve Eve uh, ceremony? Well, um, it was it was interesting. In 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 many ways, I felt I felt like I was in the land of misfit toys. <laughs> uh, but everybody was wonderful, Frank. It was a great evening, and I I was truly honored to be honored there. Everybody was great, and. Uh, you know, I look forward to coming as a, as a guest next year. If wonderful, you wonderful. That you count on it. The, the the struggle for you is going to be to stay out of prison between now and December. So uh, just work on that, and we'll be happy to have you back. I will. I will. All right, uh, Dom Crispino, uh, Dominic. Uh, I will talk with you soon, and uh, I'll look forward to uh, our next interaction on the radio as well. All right, Frank. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. If you are interested in the music that we play, uh, you're going to want to join the Facebook group. Uh, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And uh, if you um, join that group, we post the bumper music that we play there each and every day. So uh, let me uh, take you back in time to Sunday evening. I uh, played this for you on Monday, but I have an update to this story. This was uh, an interaction that uh, that Curtis Sliwa, my colleague, who you can hear the entire weekend. I think he's on for about 70 hours straight. But he's on right before I am from 10 p.m. Sunday night to 1 a.m. Monday morning till I take over. And then as I was driving in on Sunday, I heard this caller named Stuart call into Curtis uh, with a, a mild criticism. This was 11 years ago. Cuomo wasn't the same person. But if we put our money on... Wait, 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 w
10 years ago. You know that, Curtis. Come on. You know first that. off, and you weren't first off did, you give me, did you give me money? I'm going to send that money back to you. And I'm going to send it to your COD. Get the hell out of here. Yeah. Everywhere, the apologists, they emerged like out of a swamp. So now, now, as I understand it, uh, Stuart, Stuart emailed me and asked for help in getting the $2,000 that he donated to Curtis's campaign back. Because Curtis, right there, he made the offer of sending the money back. And Stewart said, yes, I would like that money back because Curtis was very nasty with me and very dismissive. So we are determined to get this money back to Stewart. Now, Curtis obviously doesn't have this money himself because he's very uh, tied up with paying for children and ex-wives and so forth and legal bills. So I raise the question, where is he going to get this money from. So today I received a mailing because look, I was a donor to uh, Curtis's campaign as well. Uh, I received a mailing as a number of other Curtis donors did um, seeking money for the stop Chuck Schumer pack that Curtis is raising money for and involved with. And by the way, and I don't know why Curtis doesn't consult me on these things. He sent out this letter that nobody's going to read. And if he would have just gave me, he said, Frank, look at this. Tell me what you think. I would have given him some strategies on how to make this a bit more, um, I don't know, effective. But people are just going to throw this out. This is a total waste of money. However, if he does raise any money off of this, uh, this mailing, which should include bullet points and highlights and different things like that, then I hope he does reimburse Stewart. And we will, re- we will bring it to your attention once that reimbursement does take place. Those of you that are holding, we'll take your calls in just a bit. For the rest of you, your influence counts. So use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, if you're not listening to Dominic Carter's show on a regular basis, you are really being shortchanged. You are shortchanging yourself in terms of a comprehensive discussion of the day's events. And uh, one of the stories that you would have heard uh, on last night's edition of the Dom- – or this morning, technically – this morning's edition on the Dominic Carter program – is the uh, rather bizarre uh, press conference that uh, that took place at City Hall yesterday involving the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. He unloaded, what's today, Wednesday? All right, he unloaded in an epic rant in which he even threatened to stop fielding off-topic questions at his press conferences. And he blasted, a lot of the media organizations over what he said was their lack of racial diversity. You know, let me say this. And, you know, I'm not saying it out of hate. I'm saying it out of love. I'm a black man. That's the mayor. But my story has been interpreted by people that don't look like me. 
We got to be honest about that. How many blacks are in the editorial boards? How many blacks have determined how these stories are being written? How many Asians? How many East Indians? How many South Asians? Everybody talks about my government being diversified. What's the diversification in the newsrooms? So everybody go back with their predispositions. And my role as mayor is being interpreted through the prisms of your realities and not mine. Now, I have to say, uh, I found this whole scolding that the mayor gave the press not only uh, bizarre, but uh, sad and unwarranted. This came before an unrelated press conference on summer youth employment efforts. And this was apparently sparked by the press coverage of his attempt to get state lawmakers to do something about crime. And I agreed uh, with uh, what Eric Adams was doing. Eric Adams went up to Albany and he met with the legislative leaders and he said, look, you got to do something about bail reform. You have to do something about, uh, you know, the various other crime problems in New York City. And I was with him completely on that aspect of his agenda. And he failed. uh, And so I just don't understand why the mayor needed to bring race into this. By the way, that's that whole episode in Albany, it underscores how important state government is to the functioning of New York City. Everyone always thinks, oh, New York City, top of the food chain, uh, capital of the world, the empire city and the empire state. Well, look, ultimately, whether your name's Eric Adams, Bill de Blasio or Mike Bloomberg or Rudy Giuliani, whomever, you're dependent on Albany for everything. And I think this latest episode where Eric Adams is begging Andrea Stewart-Cousins and Carl Hasty to do something about bail reform, and they're shrugging their shoulders. This is illustrative of that, and it's something that I don't think a lot of New Yorkers have an appreciation for. Uh, and uh, it's one of the one of the sad realities of not having better coverage of state politics. Now, um, I have been um, I was very critical of Eric Adams during the campaign, but I, I've kind of taken the approach. Uh, to Eric Adams, like I would take with every elected official, which is I'm rooting for him to do well. I, I have no problem loudly cheering every time he does something that I agree with. And I have no problem being critical of him when he does something bizarre. And we have seen a number of bizarre things in the Adams administration. But I, I, I've been pretty optimistic. I love the messaging on crime. I love that, unlike Mayor de Blasio, he actually shows up places. He's present. Uh, there's a there's a crime scene or there's a there's a cop that's shot. Uh, there's a fire. He's there. Boom. And I think that sends a very important message. Now, maybe it's more symbolic than substantive, but I think it is important symbolism. Additionally, um, he's made some very good appointments. Uh, the mayor has, and uh, I uh, the. Appointment of James Otto, the former deputy borough president, as a uh, as the chief of staff to the first deputy mayor to have a prominent Republican, uh, the guy, a guy that was a prominent Republican elected official in city government in such a big role. That is something you never would have seen in a thousand years under Bill de Blasio. And so that's positive. And um, I um, I have to tell you, though, I continue to be amazed And disappointed at Eric Adams constantly playing the race card. And we saw this during the campaign. Um, 
Catherine Garcia and Andrew Yang were campaigning together. And all they were doing was telling people about ranked choice voting. And Eric Adams concocted this bizarre conspiracy theory and and gave life to it all about how th- that this was all being des- done to deny New Yorkers the opportunity to select a black mayor. Then in the general election, when he was running against Curtis Lewa, and look, everyone knew that it was going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible, for a Republican to get elected in New York City. When he was running against Curtis Lewa, he didn't just take the high road and say, look, uh, you know, I'm going to kind of run. Here's my ideas. And this is why I think I'm a better mayor uh, than Curtis would be. He he attacked Curtis as a racist, which I found incredibly bizarre, given Curtis's history. Uh, first of all, the fact that he was married to a black woman, but then given Curtis's history of working with minorities with the Guardian Angels over the years. So I found that very troubling. And now to see this trend continue and for Eric Adams to lecture these media organizations about how many minorities are on their editorial boards and in their newsrooms, in my view, this kind of behavior uh, only exacerbates racial tensions in this city. I don't think it does anything to heal racial divisions. And, and look, I say this as somebody that wants Eric Adams to do well and uh, is rooting for him to do well. I don't see who is being served by Eric Adams' seeming obsession with race because it looks to me like he's trying to use race for political benefit, number one, and then he's trying to blame race whenever something doesn't go his way, whether that's something that's legislative or whether that's something in terms of media coverage that he may not be happy with. And I hope that that's not a trend that continues for the next four years because uh, I don't see how New Yorkers really benefit from that. You're welcome to agree. You're welcome to disagree. I'd love to hear from you. 800-848-9222. My view uh, generally with with discussions of race has been I don't see what situation is helped by obsessing over race. If you're not getting media coverage that you feel is accurate, then point it out. Um, You don't have to say you're not getting it because there are not a lot of black people on the editorial board. Tell me why. Tell me what's inaccurate. Um, 800-848-WABC. You know, I've worked on, I've been involved in politics for a long time. And I've worked on a number of campaigns. And I remember years ago, I don't want to say who this was, but I was working on a a campaign of a, a black person that was running for office. And this person was saying to their campaign staff, Oh, well, like almost joking. Oh, well, we may have to play that race card there. You know how it goes. I got this card here. I got to whip it out and just play it whenever necessary. And they were laughing about the fact that they were going to play the race card in a political event. And I just thought, and again, this is a person that I liked and do like, but I thought, how sad is that, that they're, they're, going to cry racism, not because they believe that there's actual racism, but because that they think there's a potential political benefit to saying that there's racism. I don't know. Uh, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Adams also warned that if the coverage of him doesn't improve, I love it when he threatens the press because, you know, the press really loves that. 
worked out really well for Bill de Blasio and Donald Trump. Um, Adams warned that if the coverage of him doesn't improve, quote, I'm just going to come in and do my announcements and bounce. There you have it. He's going to do his announcements and bounce. So there you have it. Uh, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Peter is in Harlem. Hello, Peter. Yes, hey, Frank, forgive me. They're sending up heat, so you might hear something in the background. I think Eric Adams overreacted, but I want to ask you a question. On your station and different so-called ethnic white stations, Eric, uh, Eric Adams has been crucified for one month. Now, my question to you is, did Giuliani solve all the crime problems in one month? No, no, of course not. Okay, I, I'm so, all for giving him a grace period. No, no, no period. I'm not talking about you because and then your sensibilities are not attuned to that of a black man. The fact is that what you quoted, they might have been joking. The thing is that, Eric, I, I think any black man that wants to rule all this garbage that's been going on in this country, he's got to have something wrong with him. Because the fact is that the, we have, uh, Frank, pardon me, we have no press. I wish Eric Adams would take on the position that Donald Trump did. Donald Trump was crucified by the press unjustly, and I wouldn't vote for Trump, by the way. But Eric Adams, like a lot of contemporary young black people, think there's fairness in this world. Look, you look at the the, the, the way things are set now, up. Now, Peter, what is that noise I'm listening to? It's the heat that's it's being done? Yeah, well, you know, I live in a neighborhood where heat comes up sporadically so that I can't make a complaint to the city legally. Yeah. So it happens to... Let me move into another room. I just want to ask you one thing, please. Be fair to the guy. The guy I, I, is, I, Peter, I'm trying no, to be no, no, fair no, I'm to just that. saying try to be fair to him because the pressure of walking into... the to borrow a Yiddish phrase, walking into this Michigan, and after whites messed it up, and then as soon as it goes into the deeper pits of destruction, you blame it on a black man. I don't think any black man in this country would be... Uh, look at God, Dominic. Dominic is so hog-tied and hen-pecked and whipped that he's afraid to say... All right, well, hey, hang on. Dominic's All not right, afraid. Uh, okay. get in trouble. Well, thank you, Peter. You know, Dominic's not here to defend himself. You want to take issue with Dominic's coverage of anything, call Dominic. And uh, Dominic's not afraid to say anything. I'll, I'll just tell you that. But if you have issue with his commentary or coverage, call him. Now, um, it's interesting to me, Peter, that you uh, – first of all, it's interesting to me that you are in an environment where uh, steam heat is that audible. I mean, I, you talk about, you know, uh, you know, the kind of torture that they would – they should consider using at Gitmo. I, I mean – you, you, Muhammad Al-Qahtani spends a week in Peter and Harlem's apartment. Forget about it. He'll tell you where bin Laden is instantly. Now, but uh, it's interesting to me that Peter felt the need to also play the race card. He said the whites mess things up and you want to blame Eric Adams. I, I have no interest in doing that. I, I want Adams to do well. Um, and I think he's done some very good things. But uh, I just don't understand why when things don't go his way, he feels the need to reflexively... Blame it on race, uh, either racism or a lack of diversity in newsrooms strikes me as um, I, it strikes me as making excuses. I, I don't I don't see that being helpful either in terms of moving the ball forward in his agenda or helpful in terms of healing whatever racial divisions may be existing in this city. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Jay is in the Poconos. Hello, Jay. 
Hey, good morning, Frank. I love the show. Thanks. Um, so you're spot on. These people are too focused about race. When I wake up every morning, I don't think that I'm white or not white. Even if I did, I couldn't change it. That's the way I was born. And I just go out and work hard every day and do the best I can. And if I fall short, I only have to look to myself to why did I not do better? And that's, I think people are missing that. And the, the call out race every time is just too convenient. And it's just being just intellectually dishonest. Well, I, I, uh, I would agree. And uh, unfortunately, this looks like it's fitting something of a pattern uh, with respect well, to Mayor Adams, Jay. Yeah, the people want to see that. I, I come to the city just about every day, and uh, I'd like to see the things get better. It breaks my heart when you see these people get pushed on the train tracks or stabbed to death or whatever it is. And that's, that's the whole community. It doesn't care if you're black, white, Chinese, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's just people are people. And right. Normal relations, like I have workmates that are black or Asian. We never even, that never even comes up. Yeah, uh, no, I, 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 again, and thank you, Jay. I, I do agree with that. I'm just rereading this Curtis Sliwa letter that he sent out. It's two pages. It's two pages, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight paragraphs on one page. And none of it is highlighted. See, what I would tell Curtis, and again, I speak to him four times a day. I don't know why he simply wouldn't just ask me, hey, hey, Frank, take a look at this. Tell me what you think. And I would tell him right away that whoever you're paying as a political consultant right now is is stealing from you, uh, just as they did during the mayoral campaign. I mean, you have this whole class of consultants that has never succeeded in getting anybody elected. The only thing they've succeeded in doing is cashing uh, checks of people that qualify for eight to one matching funds. And they're continuing this boondoggle in ripping off Curtis with this Chuck Schumer pack. And um, no one's going to read this. I mean, lesson one is the attention span of the average voter is not lengthy. And so if you're going to send a lengthy missive, as he does with this fundraising appeal for Chuck Schumer, you pick a couple of key sentences, maybe one sentence in each paragraph, and you highlight it. So this way, the people's attention is drawn to that specific sentence. So this way, if they don't want to read this whole two-page missive, I don't think the Magna Carta was as long as this thing that he just sent out. You don't want to read this whole two-page missive. It just goes to the highlighted portions. And they get the gist of it. Instead, people can read the first two sentences and then throw this out. And and the big loser is Stuart and Forest Hills, who is still not getting his money back. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Uh, let me say hello to Jennifer in Boston. Uh, Jennifer, I hope you are gearing up for your phone call to the Curtis and Anthony Weiner show for this Saturday. My God. When I ever heard it was that guy, Frank. <laughs> I, I was laughing to myself thinking of your comment. And by the way, I wasn't taking a swipe at you last time. You said something about personally. I was just saying about being compassionate for that woman in Oklahoma. Yeah, I, it's I okay. Just, I, I can handle it, Jennifer. You could take I, a swipe I, at me anytime you like. It wasn't personal. I'm just saying I get that you can be compassionate toward prisoners, you know, or you like because I have a couple of good friends that have been to prison. It's funny, Frank, one of my friends is much like the gentleman you had on 
brilliant, brilliant, brilliant attorney, wrongly charged with something, took years, case got overturned, uh, lots of lawsuits about all that, board of bar overseas, you know, gets his license back, the whole thing. It, it's kind of a, a weird thing that it's it's very parallel, you know. Hey, Jennifer, I know I've asked you this before. Re- remind me of your, your background. Why do Why do we find you awake at this time of day? <laughs> uh, like a lot of radio listeners, I guess I don't know. I'm kind of, I've always been nocturnal. Even when I was a kid, my parents could never get me to sleep. But I used to. I worked in cardiology for years, and I now I'm not working. I'm older, and I'm just home. <laughs> and, and you still, you, so you're doing these hours not out of necessity, but by choice. Correct. Yeah. Well, we're, I'm grateful for your patronage, even when uh, even when I'm off base. But go ahead. What do you want to say today? Um, so, in any event. Um, it's real quick. I just wanted to thank you and say I appreciated you speaking up about uh, the Soros conspiracy thing he threw out. And then even after that, he still kind of alluded to, well, we all have our conspiracies or whatever. You know, it, it, you were absolutely spot on. So I just wanted to, to say thank you for that. Um, and um, it, it, the fact that it, it was a little frightening to me, uh, I guess he's probably not a Republican anymore. I can't say for sure. But whatever his mentality, for a man that bright to kind of uh, the Bodine guy, uh, you know, the one whose parents were the domestic terrorists, and the the the, the uh, guy let um, Bragg, Alvin Bragg, to the fact that he was saying the things he did about the policies, it, I, I don't know. I found it a bit disconcerting. I, I just think this this country is in a, in a bad place, and to see someone as bright as that, that he was sort of. He was backing the way that they were doing that. I don't know. I, I found it a little troubling, but I thought it was a good interview nonetheless, and I thank you for calling him out on that. Can I say one thing about uh, Eric Adams? Yeah, sure. Whole, I, was, I was almost surprised that they did pull a Laurie Lightfoot and say he's only going to give interviews to, <laughs> you know, black, you know, newspaper uh, reporters or whatever. Uh, remember when she did that? I do. Ago? I do yeah. indeed. Yeah, and can you imagine if a white – a person had done that. Like I said, I think this, this, like you said, people using race as a mechanism for self-protection, um, it's it's really, you know, it's sad because they should be, every one of us should be judged. And that's that's what's gone wrong, you know, is we're not such about, uh, so much about merit anymore, you know, or how we're doing something or, or how we succeed at something. Do you know that the... Um, the admission into uh, medical school now has been changed that um, blacks do not, and I believe it's Hispanics, but definitely blacks do not have to make the same grade as whites. I, I actually did not know that, but I, 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 I'm, well, as sad as that is, I can't say that I'm terribly surprised. But isn't it terrifying? Because do you want a doctor that, you know what I mean, because they're black, or do you want whatever doctor, pink with purple polka dots, because yeah, they're well, the best doctor? Well, no, no I, I actually only want minority doctors. I don't care. Yeah. I don't care what the qualifications are. I don't even care if they finish medical school. I just want mm-hmm. somebody, uh, I, I want somebody that's a minority, ideally a transgender woman minority, uh, operating on me if I'm ever in dire need of something. Thank you for the call, Jennifer. 800 uh, by the way, it's you know it's um, I'll save that story for tomorrow. We have a lot of stuff to get to uh, uh, today and uh, and tomorrow. We're loaded for bear tomorrow. Steve is in the Catskills. Hello, Steve. Hey, Frank. How are you? Uh, you know, I guess there are varying views on that, but I, I would venture to say I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> That's good. It's a great show, Frank. I listen to you every morning. Unlike your previous caller, 
I got a, uh, I'm a super commuter. I come from the Catskills all the way down to Midtown to work every day. Love um, it. Love it. Uh, hey, have you been yeah. to the, the casino up there, Resorts World? No, I, I quit gambling many years ago. Well, smart, right. smart. That's how you stay ahead of the game. <laughs> um, what I'd like to say is um, all this talk about racism. Um, racism is almost dead, Frank. It, it's on life support. The only thing keeping racism alive is the media and the politicians. And that's it. I have two teenage boys. I've been up in the Catskills for over 20-some-odd years. My boys don't see color. They don't see race. They do not see race. It, it, it's amazing. And then when I go to the city, all I hear is race, 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 race. It, it, it's non-existent. Out of the five boroughs, Frank, I, I'm sorry. It really is. Racism is it's, it's almost dead. Well, look, I think if you look at how far the country has come, the fact that we that we elected a president that was uh, at least half black, it goes to show you that uh, racism is not providing the same kind of institutional barriers uh, to the success of the black community that it once did. Additionally, uh, look, I do think racism exists, uh, but I do think it's inflamed dramatically by the press and by politicians like the one that I just referenced, Eric Adams, um, who obsess over race and use it for a political advantage. And I do think as well that the media coverage of all racist incidents is not necessarily created equal. Now, um, we're we're led to believe that, um, you know, white supremacists are a major problem. And uh, look, I won't dispute that maybe they are. But if you look at a lot of the hate crimes that are being perpetuated in this country against gays, against uh, Hispanics, uh, uh, against Asians, a lot of those are hate crimes uh, where the perpetrators happen to be black. Now, um, uh, some of those are crimes of opportunity, not crimes of hate. But if we're going to make an issue of racism, then why is the antipathy that black people might have towards Asian? And I'm just going to disconnect you because your phone's all weird. Um, why is the antipathy? I felt like I'm on an airplane, you know, uh, uh, trying to give uh, instructions over a, a very loud, uh, you know, very loud thing. But. Why is the antipathy that uh, one community, the black community, may have towards Asians or Hispanics or another group, why is that somehow less racist in nature than white supremacism? I don't know. Hey, um, you know what should bring everybody together? The opportunity to win $1,000. Would you like to win $1,000? If so, be the seventh caller. To 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. And you will have an opportunity to play the $1,000 Minute where you'll get to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. It's tough, but as we've seen, it's not impossible. If you have what it takes, be the seventh caller now to 800-848-9222 and uh, try your hand at uh, the $1,000 Minute straight ahead. WABC.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. If you have what it takes to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222. It's a a challenging contest, the $1,000 minute, but it's certainly something that we've seen people have some success with over the last couple of months. And uh, it's a trend we'd like to, you know, see continue. You know, we don't want to give money away every day, but we'd like to give money away regularly. So try and be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, and uh, we will give you that opportunity. And uh, I did peruse. um, I did come up with these questions. They're not too tough. There's one question that is, I think, a little tricky but with a little guess, uh, with a little luck, you should be able to get it. So if you want to try and uh, try your hand at the, the $1,000 minute, be the seventh caller to 800-848-WABC. If you want to email me, uh, you can do so, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Uh, and you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash morano fan. Now, in addition to our... The Other Side of Midnight podcast, which you should be uh, subscribing to, even if you traditionally listen to this show live, we'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to the podcast anyway, because let's face it, a lot of times you can't listen to all four hours and you're missing good stuff. And uh, it just it helps our numbers if we have a whole bunch of people subscribing. So if you want to be a mensch, you can also uh, leave a positive review on iTunes or Google, Google Podcasts on Spotify Leave a nice five-star review and leave a positive comment. That'll actually help other people discover the podcast. But uh, what I was going to say is, in addition to the um, you know the, the show's podcast itself, you should subscribe to the Racket Report. We have a brand new edition of the Racket Report coming out at nine a.m. this morning. I'm not going to spoil it for you now, but it's one with a veteran journalist who has been covering issues related to the mafia for a long time. And I'll tell you about it tomorrow once this podcast is live. But the surefire way, this is only exclusive to the podcast. This is stuff that you hear on the radio. So the best thing you could do is subscribe to The Racket Report if you're interested in true crime issues, especially issues related to organized crime. Now, uh, without further ado, it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents, it's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Ah, yes, let's meet today's contestant, Adam in New Jersey. Hello there, Adam. Hello there, Frank. Adam, what part of New Jersey do you live in, Adam? I'm down in Howell. It's uh, central Jersey. Okay. Okay. I hear there's some people that don't even believe there is such a thing as central Jersey. Have you heard that? Absolutely. All the time. But it's central Jersey. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Shore, you right. Know. I'm with you. I mean, clearly Cape May is south Jersey. Clearly, uh, you know, uh, communities like, uh, I don't know, um, Old Tapan, that's north Jersey, right? Yes. Yeah. Everything in between central. All right. Um, okay, are you familiar with the $1,000 Minute, Adam? You've heard this contest before? I've heard it. I've never uh, listened to it. I, this is an early day for me. I got oh, wonderful. started at work, Great. so we're going to Okay, gonna so let, let me give you the Reader's Digest version of how this goes. So you're going to have 60 seconds to answer 10 trivia questions. These trivia questions are not tough. The, the tough thing is 
not getting flustered. So um, if the answer sounds obvious, just say the obvious answer. These are not trick questions uh, for the most part anyway. There's one that's kind of tricky. But um, the timer will start after I ask the first question. If you get a question right, I'm just going to move on to the next question so that we can work our way through all of these uh, and so that you have time to get to all 10. If you hear, if you answer a question incorrectly, you'll hear a, a, an incorrect buzzer. If you answer um, nine out of questions, nine out of 10 questions correct, you'll get $250. If you answer eight out of que- 10 questions correct, you'll get $100. Uh, you ready to go? Yes. Okay. On what body part does one generally apply deodorant? The underarms. What color is traditionally worn on St. Patrick's Day? Green. What country did Nelson Mandela serve as president of? South Africa. In football, how many points is a touchdown worth? Six. Who wrote the book The Time Machine? Orwell. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, It was H.G. Wells. You had the well part right, but it was H.G. Wells, not uh, not George Orwell. A valiant effort, though. Have you ever read The Time Machine? Yes. You read it and you still got that wrong? It's been a while. I hear you. I know. It's been a while since I've read it as well. All right. Adam, uh, hang on and uh, talk to to, uh, Alex Barnard. And uh, Alex Barnard whose name isn't even really Alex, uh, is going to get your information and will send you a consolation prize of some sort. Uh, hopefully, you know, a very nice The Other Side of Midnight Cap, but if it's not that, he'll send you something else good. By the way, a lot of you have been um, writing to me about uh, the, 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 how happy you are to get the merchandise from the show. Whether you win a prize or whether you um, purchase a hat or some other sort of, um, you know, uh, the other side of midnight paraphernalia. I love seeing your photos of it. And if you want to tag me in one of these photos of you wearing a hat or a shirt or whatever the case may be, uh, I'd love to share it. I want to thank uh, a gentleman named Frank Mitch who posted to the Facebook group him wearing the other side of midnight T-shirt. Looks great in it. Looks very stylish. Got a cool logo. It's got my name on it. And it was very nice. I didn't give Frank this shirt. He purchased it on his own and then posted it to the Facebook group. So if you have been purchasing the other side of Midnight uh, Paraphernalia, post a photo of it. Uh, we'll share it, and I think it will inspire other people to purchase it as well. So if you uh, if you are interested in purchasing a the other side of Midnight baseball cap or a T-shirt or a coffee cup or a travel mug, whatever the case may be, a beautiful fleece blanket – Go to WABCRadioStore.com. We've got some great stuff on there. I don't even have all this stuff. So uh, WABCRadioStore.com, and you can search The Other Side of Midnight, or you can search Morano, and uh, you will see the uh, terrific merchandise we have available. Now, whatever you purchase, if you use the promo code FRANK15, you'll save 15% off. So that's uh, pretty neat. And I don't know what uh, Vinny Madunia was doing. But Vinny Madunio is on every day at 5 p.m. Not every day, every Saturday at 5 p.m. with a great music show, which I listen to. And he apparently is leading all of us in sales. I'm not sure how that's possible, but I'm trying to catch up. So if you want to help us out, uh, then you can go and um, purchase some, you know, some some great merchandise. 
WABCRadioStore.com. That's WABCRadioStore.com. Now, I did allude to the fact that um, Alex was taking the caller's information there. Alex is our telephone talent coordinator for today. Alex, give me the new dance card here. We had Molly sitting in your seat uh, yesterday. A couple of days before, it was Ryan. A couple of days before that, it was Philippe. I'm getting whiplash trying to keep track of who's answering the phone here. How, how did you end up as our telephone talent coordinator, Alex? I think it's only for tonight again, honestly. we There's been a lot of, you know, changes, shall we say, over the past few days. And uh, I think... Molly will be back to the phones tomorrow. Well, let's hope so. Heaven, uh, you know, heaven <laughs> help us. Now, uh, you're doing a decent job, uh, I must say. You only allowed one caller on uh, with their uh, with their radio on, and uh, and everybody has been the right name so far. Nobody has said, "Oh, I'm not Bill. I'm I'm Joe." Um, now, explain to me, Alex. And I heard you describing this to Dominic off air, and. And I was busy, and I was hesitant to look like I was paying too much attention because I didn't want you to then have to re-explain it to me off air while I was preparing for the show, and then me have to act like I'm paying attention to you and, and not resume my show prep. But explain to me why you have been walking around on crutches for the last two weeks. Oh, Frank, you really are going to go there, huh? I am. Okay. I've never been happier for oh, anything no. to happen. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. Why? <laughs> no, this is a judgment-free zone. Okay. But it okay. is it is a curious zone. Uh, well, uh, the story partially involves Molly, but... Um, of course it does. <laughs> I could have seen that coming. Uh, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> uh, last weekend, I was hanging out with Molly and a couple friends of ours. We had some drinks, and then... Afterwards, I was hanging out with a girl I was interested in seeing. No, not afterwards. You kicked well, me hey, out to well, see the girl. Let, 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 let <laughs> Alex may, give his recitation of events, and then we'll allow you, Molly, an opportunity to, to retort. Go ahead. Right. So as Molly, uh, you know, rudely interrupted and said, um, I kicked her out of uh, my place. But um, <laughs> am I to understand it's because... You and Molly have a, a platonic relationship in addition to your professional relationship, and then you and this other young lady in question, you, you have more of a romantic relationship? That is correct, yes. Okay, so how do you end up on crutches? Did she assault you? No, no, no. Um, so, yeah, I can't believe I'm saying this over the air, but um, I was I dropped her off at her place after... Uh, you know, we were hanging out, and I was very happy that she came over. So, I uh, I did a a bit of a heel click, shall we say? And um, I when I landed on this was on concrete, by the way. I landed, and my um, ankle I felt I felt something weird all the way up from my ankle to my knee, and then uh, fell and landed on my shoulder and sprained everything. Well, so l- let me Talking try to lay off the schnapps. Let, let, let me <laughs> let me try to understand exactly what transpired here. So you kicked Molly out to spend time with a uh, a a you know a young woman that you had romantic designs on. Okay. Frank, I was crying yep. when he kicked me out. I- well, oh my God! You 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 cry you're when me... you cry when there's tails in a coin toss. So that in <laughs> wow, you're itself, making me sound terrible, Molly. So no, uh, so um, Alex, you spent you went out on a date with this woman, or did she just come over to wherever you were, or did you go to her place? How did that work? She came over to to uh, my place. All right, so you guys spent time with one another. 
You spend time with one another, and you drop her off, right? Right. And then you say you do a heel kick on cement. What is a heel kick? Well, exactly? you know, like the um, you ever see in the movies when like a somebody's really happy or whatever, and they kind of jump in the air and click their heels together. You, so you clicked your no, I have not seen that. You clicked your heels in midair. Yeah, it's like a you know like a very stupid um, on 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 the sidewalk. I jumped, yeah, I had jumped off from the sidewalk uh, and uh, clicked my heels in the air, and then I landed uh, with my with my right foot, and I felt something, you know, pretty sharp up through from my ankle up through my knee. And so, um, then, w- did you go to the hospital or? or uh, no, since I was only four blocks away from where I live, I uh, picked myself up and limped home. And then how did you end up on crutches? How did you know that you needed medical attention? Well, when I woke up the next morning, I just the first thing out of my mouth, uh, I like went up to my mom. I was like, I need to go to a doctor like right now. <laughs> I uh, and so I went to a, an urgent care. <laughs> yeah, I was in pretty much immediate pain from there. And yeah. did they do x-rays? They did x-rays. Uh, and then. Well, not when I not at the urgent care. I actually went to a, a different doctor the the following day for an X. Oh, there were multiple visits of to medical facilities. Yep. He's going tomorrow morning. Are you really going tomorrow? <laughs> that, well, that's uh, something else. But um, I'm sorry, Alex. Yeah, you're just yeah. Thanks no, for revealing my medical history, Molly. Yeah, no, there are you know? HIPAA laws here, yeah. uh, Molly. <laughs> and you see, I usually wait. Molly How usually waits till I wave her in and invite her on the show. When it comes to this subject. She had no problem. Just oh, I, I inserting saw. Her, yeah, there was a lot of there was a kind of enthusiasm <laughs> that I think you. you 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 had after this date. So, did you tell this woman that you injured yourself in excitement over spending time with her? That's probably the dumbest part of what I did. Yeah. And what did she say? Uh, she, um, like the next day, was like, "Yeah, I'm not interested in seeing you anymore." Well, thank goodness. <laughs> You're going to lose a limb if you keep at it. Right. Exactly. Honestly. Um, well, yeah. this is uh, this is. Terrible. So, how long are you on crutches for? Do you have any idea? Well, actually, you know, my I would say my knee and ankle are kind of starting to feel a little better. I don't really see myself needing it for after maybe next week. So, uh, so that'll be what three weeks that you're on crutches after this yeah. date? Yeah, about yeah, two or three weeks. I yeah, crashed and burned. Right. And are you back on the saddle uh, dating wise now? I saw a girl this morning. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And no injuries. Nope, no injuries. Well, that's that's great. So, um, and, but you don't believe that you're going to be uh, telephone uh, screening with us tomorrow? Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't believe so. I think I'm going to be back to uh, screening for Rita and Dominic. You know, a lot of things have been kind of up in the air around here lately. But all right, well, we're happy to have you, even in your weakened condition. I feel bad for you, and I hope you view this as a, a cautionary tale. And the next time that you are enthusiastic about spending time with anybody, especially uh, you know a potential romantic suitor, you will. I don't know exercise caution. I've learned my lesson for sure. Yes, yeah. there you go. Use protection, <laughs> like uh, knee pads or something, or a helmet. Yes, exactly. I my mean... goodness. All right. Well, good. I'm the man. <laughs> uh, Molly, since you're here, do you have anything that you want to add to this? Uh, just that Alex is available, um, and he's really nice. And I just talked about how much he's a goofball and stuff, and... Probably said way too much, and he's probably going to be a little mad at me, so I'm throwing him a little. 
bone here and saying he's a good guy. So. Fair enough. Oh, okay, that's well, not that's enough, wild. Molly. But okay, you know. <laughs> fine. I, I can think of a few callers who probably have some feelings for you, Alex. Oh, How about I that? I can that's think of them too. That's very sweet. All right. Um, Akram is in New Jersey. Hello, Akram. Hi, uh, Frank. Hi, to Frank. Hi, Frank. Uh, Just call me he, Frank. Okay, right. The, the the question raised by uh, Eric Adams is uh, the identical question that's being uh, addressed in the national football uh, situation with the coaches that where there are no black coaches, and it it that in itself is synonymous with a mindset, the mindset of Caucasians being superior to black people. This is a mindset, and and I don't expect you to understand it because consciously or unconsciously, you are a practitioner of that behavior. What do I mean by that? I listen to you all the time, and some, you know, most times you try to lend a balance. But at the same token, you have no shame in worshiping an image, a Caucasian image of yourself as God. I used to be in the Catholic Church. I left that because that is a racist, the, 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 the foothold of racism where you teach the world that God, the creator of the universe, is a white man. And w- when Adam uh, talks about these uh, boards, these are people who don't have the experience. They're raised differently. They're raised and taught that people like Columbus, who I know you love and Curtis loves these, these people like that. Columbus was a killer. This is a guy who massacred. He's a mass murderer. But and and again, you would uh, you were against the removal of the statue of, of Theodore Roosevelt. These are people who have practiced the most heinous acts and. If you you would never you would never Frank have a picture of O.J. Simpson a statue of O.J. Simpson or Nelson Mandela and teach you a common or racial your children to worship that image as your god but you have no problem the Caucasian people I'm talking about now have no problem in teaching the world that God is a white man so it's a big problem that has to be addressed and until that is addressed. You see what happened in Central Jersey, uh, where the, the 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 white the Caucasian boy was put on the bench, while the little African boy was attacked and brutalized by the police. Akram, couple now, cu- couple of things here, and I, and I wish we had uh, more time, but there's a few things that you said that I want to follow up with. One, I don't think that I've ever uh, stated uh, that, uh, and I don't know that part of the Catholic. Uh, theology is that uh, that God is a is a white man. Is there? Is that? You, you ever seen a a, a, a a statue of a black Jesus? Jesus well, is the son of God, according to them. He's a, a Caucasian. But Akram, Akram, if you look at if you look at um, historical recreations of what Jesus probably looked like, um, Jesus yeah Historical. right right but G- Jesus looked he looks like an Arab to be honest I mean he looks I mean if you look at um, the recreations that they've made of Jesus's face 
based on the uh, Shroud of Turin and other things. Um, I mean, he looks almost like, uh, and again, I'm not trying to be funny here. He looks like Bin Laden. You know, this is Jesus wouldn't wouldn't be able to get on a, an airplane without having a hard time in the United States. So I, I don't accept your characterization of either my or the Catholicism, not that I speak for all Catholics, Catholicism's worship of Jesus as a white man. But also, uh, the, the one thing that, I, I, and again, I do think you're right, in that I am a prism, I'm a prisoner of my uh, perspective. And where you stand depends on where you sit. And it's easy for me um, uh, to not understand where other people come from. And I do try. Uh, to uh, to get a greater perspective from where other people come from. But you said... I think so. But, I think you do. But you, you said that um, you, that I would never have a statue or worship a statue of, of O.J. Simpson. I mean, you've got to see, Akram, that there is a big difference between O.J. Simpson and Theodore Roosevelt, isn't there? No, the point I'm making is that I use Nelson Mandela also. The pitch, the problem is... I know, but I, and teach, I thought that was odd, too, that you put O.J. Simpson in the same category as Nelson Mandela. Because I'm talking about the race, the skin color. Right, but what, one, color, one person is a murdering, a murdering running no, back. I'm not, I'm not character. I'm uh, talking about the skin color. Yeah, skin but, color. but the thing is, I would encourage my child to look up to and have reverence for Nelson Mandela. And I would never have uh, encouraged my child to have that sort of reverence for O.J. Simpson because, and and thank you for the call, Akram. I wish we could uh, have a a greater discussion about this, but I would, I would, you know, I would encourage them to make judgments based on O.J. Simpson's contributions to the world. Um, And the sum total of O.J.'s contributions are, he was good at playing a game, and then he was halfway decent as an actor. Uh, and all of those accomplishments are erased a hundredfold by his participation in a double murder. And then once he gets away with a double murder, he becomes essentially uh, a, a, a total thug. And, you know... You compare that to Nelson Mandela or Theodore Roosevelt, to me, it's a world of difference, a world of difference. So, um, I, you know, again, it's not we're not going to solve the problems of race in a one minute phone call, uh, but uh, we will we will revisit this in the future. Fifteen seconds of fame straight ahead. One, two, three, four open lines. And you know what we're going to do in honor of racial harmony? We are going to invite all races to participate in this edition of 15 Seconds of Fame. Uh, blacks, whites, Asians, Hispanics, you name it. Uh, you know, If you're transracial, like uh, Ollie London, we'll put you to the front of the line. All races, welcome for this edition of 15 Seconds of Fame. 800-848-9222, straight ahead. WABC. Start your morning with Frank Morano on 77 WABC.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, all the time that we spent uh, talking about uh, constitutional conventions and transracial people and non-binary people and uh, lawyers turned felons, we didn't have much of an opportunity to talk about UFOs uh, today. So uh, I'm going to make an effort to redouble our focus on that in the next day or two. But for now, it's time for you to be heard at 800-848-9222. 15 seconds, because it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Faith. Oliver, hello. Give me vaccines in summers. Makes you think all the world's a sunny day. Oh, yeah. Still had five seconds there, Oliver. Jose! Yes, I'm a Latino Dominicano. This racial thing is driving me crazy. Every single day, talking about the same thing. It's just too much. Instead of going forward, we're going backwards. Thank you. Joe in Orange County. Yeah, people forget that business owners, NFL, or the grocery store can hire whoever they want. Okay? And that last caller should look at Malcolm X and Denzel Washington. They're the biggest racist black Americans going. Jeff in Suffolk. Eric Lightfoot Adams. Do your job, son. I had hope for New York City. I guess we're in trouble again. Mike in New Jersey. Hey, Justin Trudeau, get a haircut. It's hard to be tyrannical when you look like you belong in a 90s boys band. Cheech in Howard Beach. A leopard doesn't change its spots. Eric Adams, get the hatred out of your heart. Start moving forward and make the city clean and safe. Larry in Brooklyn. To Eric's credit, I think that he tried to break into the black cabal that has a gun to the neck of all New York, and he failed, and he didn't get credit for it, so he got upset. Leo in Manhattan. To the last caller, better than removing Theodore Roosevelt, uh, we having now statue of, uh, of a fellow and criminal who is black. Thank you very much. Billy in the Bronx. <laughs> Gary in Staten Island. Teddy Roosevelt was the leader of the Progressive Party when he ran in 1912. These people who attack him don't know what they're talking about. They don't even bother to, like, find out what they're talking. He was a big progressive. Anthony in Addison. Yes, good morning. Uh, Jesus, probably at the time in the Middle East, being a Jewish carpenter, probably was a tanned white man. And uh, more more righteously, uh, he would want people to be uh, living a life of law and order, not worried about their skin color. Uh, thank you, Edison. That's uh, Anthony. That slams the lid on things for today. Stay tuned for uh, Deb Valentine and the early news. And then uh, coming up from 6 to 10, you'll get to hear the Bernie and Sid show, including that uh, Russian spy that we once had on who became a model. She's going to be on with Sid uh, this morning. She'll be worth listening to. I'll be back at 1 a.m. Frank Moreno, good day.